Okay, I think we're live. All right, good morning, everyone. Um, welcome to the July 23rd edition of the Saturday Free School. Um, as you may have seen, we're meeting virtually today instead of in person as we usually do. Um, this is due to the extreme heat that we're experiencing here in Philadelphia. Um, and so today we're gonna continue our discussion of the synthesis of Du Bois and Lenin. We'll discuss how this connects to questions of sociology and, and political economy, as well as its meaning for building a people's movement of a new type. Um, we'll also discuss a recent speech given by Vladimir Putin uh, this week, explaining the revolutionary changes that are taking place in the international sphere. And so today I'm joined by Dr. Anthony Montero, as well as Serafina Harris, Forba Chatterjee, Nuri Yi, uh, Shambharta Chatterjee, and, uh, and I'm Jeremiah. And with that, I'll pass it over to Doc. Okay, thank you very much, Jerry, and good morning to everybody. Um, you know, uh, it's always hard to, to get straight how to begin being back on um, a Zoom rather than in person. Uh, but, you know, uh, we in the free school have devoted ourselves collectively to not just commenting upon the world, but understanding it in all its complexities and profundities. Uh, if it were just a matter of us commenting upon events, uh, we, we would just be journalists. Uh, but we do more than journalism, as valuable and invaluable as good journalism is. Um, but we are doing something else. And uh, we are trying to explain the world ideologically, theoretically, philosophically, and we're trying to use that understanding to help in the development of what can be called a people's movement of a new type, which I'd like to return to. Uh, uh, and I'd like to return to it, I just should say now, often uh, the question of a movement is made to sound secondary to the, uh, and I'll just use this language because it's used by a lot of leftists, the question of the party, the party. Um, and I, I like to come back to that. And, and in the event that I forget to really uh, develop it, remind me, Jerry. Uh, the other thing is, um, you know, as, as we've been saying over the last few months, as we embarked upon understanding Hegel's science of logic, and uh, just to remind everyone that um, we have gone over many things in the study of the science of logic. You might recall that we have been engaged in the study of the theories of certain theories of physics, especially quantum mechanics and relativity theory, but especially the unresolved scientific uh, 
uh, and philosophical questions that arise with quantum mechanics, especially from the 1920s going forward. And so we've spent some time on that. Uh, certainly we'll have to return to it. Uh, but then we've done a lot of work in trying to understand from the text itself what Hegel is getting at in the science of logic, uh, his understanding of dialectics. Uh, we have devoted some time to Frederick Engels' uh, ideas as his summarizing ideas about uh, the uh, science of logic or the laws of dialectics, pardon me, as Engels calls them. And then we have tried to use our discussion of dialectics to understand this moment in history. And in a lot of ways, you know, looking back before um, we started the study of the science of logic, uh, we did not, um, I don't think we spoke so much about logic, the logic of events or the dialectics of events uh, in the ways that we have since, uh, which in some ways means that we are better positioned to understand this moment of transition. And it is that, and we have been acknowledging it in the free school I would say for at least five or six years now. Uh, you know, we did not panic as with the liberals or follow the liberals and social democrats and uh, academic leftist lead uh, concerning the meaning and significance of the election of Donald Trump. We saw it what, for what it was. Uh, we saw potential in it, um, and so on. Uh, we were never anti-Trump, Trumpers, anti-Trump people, anti-Trump movement. And I think it is our study of philosophy that has further enabled us to engage with the plethora, and I guess you could call it, a form of a fog of war, all, you know, every month, a different theory, which in one or another way, put the people down and diminish the possibilities of real social change. Um, so we have benefited from this. And of course, you know, we took the position uh, that philosophy is politics and ideology by other means, which means that we do not do philosophy like academics do it. Uh, I think that's very, very apparent. Uh, we do philosophy, you know, very much in a Du Boisian way, uh, Du Bois uh, said many times that at Harvard, he wanted to do his PhD in philosophy 
but William James, one of his good friends and professors at Harvard, suggested that, well, it might not be a good idea because you can't get a job with it. So Du Bois says that he decided that he wanted to link history and philosophy in order to produce sociology. Uh, let me explain that because I think this will be important to the way we go forward and talk about Lenin and, and Du Bois of sociology and political economy. Uh, he was saying that if you take two major bodies of knowledge, history already established body of knowledge, philosophy already established body of knowledge, uh, most um, social scientific uh, or what went for social science in those days uh, went through philosophy and history. Um, even political economy did. So these were two established bodies of knowledge. Du Bois theorized that he could synthesize these two foundational and important bodies of knowledge to produce a new knowledge discipline called sociology. Uh, the reason I bring up that point in this context is that <clears throat> Du Bois's approach to philosophy was uh, very practical, uh, and uh, very much connected to producing knowledge of human beings. Uh, hence, Du Bois's approach to philosophy is not that of the academician. Frankly, neither was his approach to uh, history. I'll get to that in a minute. So the way the free school does philosophy is Du Boisian in the practical application of philosophy, the usefulness of philosophy to the understanding of humanity and the historic processes of human development and evolution. In that sense, Philosophy, once it becomes practical, is inevitably connected to the political and ideological struggles of our time. So we don't do philosophy, you know, in, in the many ways that it's faddish today, philosophy as cultural critique, or philosophy as movie criticism or philosophy as critique of pop culture. Philosophy is not just, quote, critique in this postmodern sense, but philosophy is a practical, um, uh, a practical, how do I put it? A practical part of knowing, of creating new knowledge and creating new knowledge for the sake of creating new movements and for freedom itself. In this respect, 
our approach to Hegel is like Du Bois, but also similar to Marx and Lenin. Um, so, so we do philosophy, we do it proudly, we do it without apologies. Uh, again, you know, like we were talking last week, uh, I don't know whether it was last week, but sometimes we talk about it all the time, you know, uh, where people want to say, well, what are you doing? Mm. Or why don't you do something? You know, people are hungry, you know? Um, and the question always comes up, well, what is to be done? What do you propose that we do? Well, there's a demonstration somewhere. You need to join that demonstration. You all are just, you know, so on and so forth. Well, this is, um, a, a not unusual and not uncommon uh, tactic of diversion. Usually uh, it is um, uh, used by, um, um, well, I'll just say it like this, agent provocateurs. You know, I saw it in my own life coming up. You know, you couldn't pick up a book without you know, one of these advocates of uh, uh, do something saying, well, you're not doing anything. You're not revolutionary. You're not, you know, this, that, and the other. Uh, it always happens. Uh, you know, we experienced this in the 2020 election period, uh, all this activism and all these marches. And then two years later, you ask yourself, well, where did all that go? Well, it went where it was supposed to go. It did what it was intended to do. Uh, but no uh, serious uh, thinking or revolutionary ideas or revolutionary strategies came out of it. Well, so we, you know, we're not about any of that. Um, we, ha we have had to acknowledge the vast and complex ideological landscape in which we live. This is not easy uh, for anybody. And most people in the face of it throw up their hands and retreat. But, you know, besides the fact of the general complexity of the ideological landscape, we live side by side, and I wish to emphasize this, side by side with perhaps the most reactionary and dangerous ruling class in human history. They have all of the means and often threaten to use them to destroy humanity. Um, and, and say they're doing all of this in the name of democracy. Uh, without going into a lot of detail, I just want to once again underline, we live in the country that is ruled by an elite who are the most dangerous group of rulers that humanity has ever seen. Somebody will say, well, what about Hitler? 
Hitler was dangerous, but Hitler did not have the means to do what our ruling class is capable of doing. Nor did Hitler ever imagine the type of unipolar world and single hegemon that the ruling class of the United States has openly said is its ambition. I mean, what does this mean to claim in a world of many centers of culture, of civilization, of economics, and so on, for a single ruling class to claim its singular right to rule over humanity and to enforce that through 800 military bases around the world, through the most dangerous weapons ever produced, a ruling class that um, uh, uh, regularly provokes other nations as it is doing as we speak with China. Uh, this is unbelievable. It supersedes Hitler by, by many, many hundreds of miles. Even in its imagination, Hitler could never imagine this. So here we are. Um, uh, let, me, let me just say a few things. And in the midst of this, as you know, you know, we in free school, you know, often talk about this. We're often faced with headwinds. If we say celebrate India's 75th uh, anniversary of independence, someone will come up and say, well, the leaders of the independence movement for India were castes and that they did not solve the caste problem. So why should we in 2022 celebrate India's independence? To us, it sounds like one of the stupidest questions ever to be asked. If, if one has an ounce of understanding of history, pre the colonial period and after, India is not India of British colonial rule today nor is Asia what it was when British and other colonial powers ruled. Even at the most minimal level, we all have a lot to celebrate on the 75th anniversary of India's independence. Uh, you know, we celebrated the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Communist Party of China. And, you know, in, I guess it, in many quarters, as they say, uh, it was whispering and, and smearing and trivializing of it. But we made it clear 
that our celebration of the Communist Party of China is the celebration of China's independence, of China's revolutionary people's forces seizing state power and forming a people's republic where the party, the Communist Party said that it was in a social contract with the Chinese people. And now we see the fruition and crystallization of this. So to celebrate the Communist Party of China was to celebrate the victory of the Chinese revolution in the same way that we have celebrated the victory of India's independence, the ways that we celebrated Gandhi, his 150th birthday, and once again, the blowback of why, you know, uh, by the way, these are the people who always talking about what are you doing? You know? uh, but, uh, and then of course, Du Bois, the 150th anniversary of Du Bois, a whole year where the city in one or another way was brought in to the celebration of Du Bois and his great contributions to the liberation of humanity. So, but then we could barely get out of these celebrations and, and these celebrations are ways of politically educating the people of this city and beyond this city. We could barely get out of that before here we come with the 1619 project and the counter-revolution of 1776 thesis. Uh, each of which uh, is clearly designed to put the American people down to say that there are only reactionary possibilities uh, in the American uh, polity of politics that uh, uh, some have gone, went so far as to say that the most advanced part of the white population were the billionaire class, the corporate class, and that the white masses were irreversibly counter-revolutionary, racist, and fascist. Um, that was the 1776 project thesis uh, and implication, and that was the 1619 project uh, thesis, uh, which also uh, gave birth to uh, the idea of settler colonialism uh, and um, the idea that the United States, to explain uh, race in the United States, you had to substitute the concept for it the concept of caste and that all white people were part of a upper caste, all Asians and Latinos were part of a middle caste and all black people were uh, uh, what you call the underclass, undercaste. Now, where does that leave us? Of course, it leaves us with no possibilities out. Uh, and I think because of our study of, um, of philosophy and just our general study, our, gen our anchorage in Du Bois and King and you know, just so much that we do, we made what 
is in substance a completely different and alternative thesis. And it's not because we just wanted to, it is because sociological and historical evidence suggests that the United States people are on the cusp of becoming a new people. That the nation today, contrary to the 1619 project and settler colonialist theories, the United States is less racist in 2022 than it was in 1962. The American people are less racist. They are not yet where we must be, but they are less racist. The other thesis that we put forward, and I think even a polling data confirms this. The American people are less predisposed to war, more anti-war than they were at the height of the anti-Vietnam war protest. On the question of the anti-racist character, evolving character of the American people and of the question of anti-war, this puts the vast majority of the American people in opposition to the trajectory and ambitions of the American ruling class. I don't believe that ever in the history of this country has the political divide, I wanna emphasize the political divide, and I don't mean voting in elections or politics, the ideological and political divide between the people and the ruling class has never been so wide and the difference is never so intense. Our work in the free school over the past six years, limited though it may be, begins to say to us, this experience that we have had begins to show us precisely what I am saying. We have not arrived at this conclusion uh, through uh, being in a university seminar or research institution. We have arrived at this conclusion through involvement with people, with people's organization in intense discussions and so on. And then you know, uh, looking at events uh, in our country. So the free school, because of the way we study, because of the way that we implement and put into practice our ideas, and I wanna emphasize this. This is where the side of courage comes into play. 
It's not just about how smart we are. It's about how courageous we are. When it means going against what is popular opinion, so be it if the truth is what matters. And so we have, we struggle to, to always find ways to implement and to bring into the orbit of our thinking larger numbers of people. You know, and I, I have to say, we believe in the people so much that we, we think that these ideas can be readily understood by children and youth. I mean, so interesting. Sometimes I think even better understood by children and youth. They don't have as much baggage. And we don't have a, uh, a requirement of having gone to this grade or the other grade or graduated from here or there. We look upon the people as a whole, as filled with great potential. So um, let, me, uh, let me just end there. And then, then we want to read this. Uh, Jeremiah is going to read this from this speech by Vladimir Putin. Uh, if I could just, about Putin. Don't underestimate his intellect and his intellectual energy. Uh, this is a formidable figure on the world stage. Uh, and I think when we listen to uh, this brief speech that uh, Putin gave, I think you'll see what we're talking about. And then we'll come back, relate that to what we're doing going forward. Thank you, Doc. I'm sharing the uh, link to the speech in the live stream right now. Um, okay. And I just want to say we have people saying good morning. Um, Brother Gregory Muhammad says peace and blessings. Uh, and Nabila also said good morning, that it's good to see everyone. And um, yeah, just before we get to the speech, she says, uh, yes, Tony, we have fools in charge of all of this death and destruction, yeah. and this is why they make all of these end-of-the-world movies, etc. Like oh, apocalyptic movies, I guess. Oh, yeah. Hey, Jerry, can yeah. I just say something to Brother Gregory and Sister Nabila? Um, next week in the free school, we're going to do a tribute to William Hart Muhammad, his life and his work uh, at the church. Uh, won't won't be our last thing, but it'll be just our tribute to him. And uh, it would be great, Brother Gregory, if you could come because I know you knew uh, Brother William from prison ministry, et cetera. And Sister Nabila, I, I think you knew him also. We're gonna have people who grew up with him. Uh, hopefully, if anybody knows how to get in touch with his brother Wilbur, that'll be good for him to come but we wanna talk about the, the significance of William Hart Muhammad, his life, his work, and what he stood for. So excuse me for interrupting you, Jerry. No, of course. Um, okay, I'm going to try to share my screen.
und Um, okay. I'm not sure if it's allowing me. Nuri, would you be able to share your screen actually of the speech? Oh, wait, never mind. Oh, there it is. I can, can you all see that? Yeah. Okay, great. So yeah, I shared the link in the, the comments, but um, I believe this speech was given earlier this week at a Russian national forum um, talking about Russia's um, development goals. And so we're gonna start, um, it's, it's a pretty short speech, but we're gonna start a little bit into Putin's remarks. Um, and yeah, Doc, feel free to chime in uh, whenever. But uh, I'll start reading. So Putin says, this mechanism is fully consonant with the tasks of our internal development and the time when truly revolutionary transformations are gaining momentum and getting stronger. These enormous changes are irreversible, of course. National and global processes are underway to develop the fundamentals and the principles of a harmonious, fairer, and more community-focused and safe world order as an alternative to the existing world order or the, or the unipolar world order in which we lived and which, because of its nature, is definitely becoming a break on the development of our civilization. The model of total domination by the so-called golden billion is unfair. Why should this golden- oh, 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 uh, Jerry, explain what a uh, golden billion means. It's so, a uniquely Russian term. Yeah, so my understanding is um, it's a term used by, by Russia for uh, the sort of ruling elite of the West um, and sort of their control over both Western societies as well as uh, the world at large. Um, so he says, the model of total domination by the so-called golden billion is unfair. Why should this golden billion which is only part of the global population, dominate everyone else and enforce its rules of conduct that are based on the illusion of exceptionalism. It, it divides the world into first and second class people and is therefore essentially racist and neocolonial. The underlying globalist and pseudo-liberal ideology is becoming increasingly more like totalitarianism and, and is restraining creative endeavor and free historical creation. One gets the impression that the West is simply unable to offer the world a model for the future of its own. Indeed, it was no accident that the golden billion attained its gold and achieved quite a lot, but it got there not because it implemented certain concepts. It mainly got to where it is by robbing other peoples in Asia and Africa. That is how it was. India was robbed for an extensive, extensive period of time. This is why the elite of the golden billion are terrified of other global development centers potentially coming up with their own development alternatives. No matter how much the West and the supranational elite strive to preserve the existing order, a new era and a new stage in world history are coming. Only, genu only genuinely sovereign states are in a position to ensure a high growth dynamic 
and become a role model for others in terms of standards of living and quality of life. The protection of traditional values and high humanistic ideals and development models where an individual is not a means, but the ultimate goal. Sovereignty is about freedom of national development and thus the development of every individual. It is about the technological, cultural, intellectual and educational solvency of a state. That is what it is. No doubt, responsible, active and nationally minded and nationally oriented civil society is the most important component of sovereignty. I'm convinced that in order to be strong, independent and competitive, we need to improve the mechanisms for people to participate in the country's life and to make them more open and fairer. That includes mechanisms for, for direct democracy and people's involvement in addressing the critical problems facing society and the public. The way forward is to rely on our people's creative potential to team up with you and people like you who are not with us today. Uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, go, go ahead, Jerry, you might wish to say something. No, I mean, this is um, the first time I'm reading the speech, but I think it, it echoes a lot of the sort of um, the messages that I think Putin has been saying, especially in the past few months. Um, but I think it's definitely a more like co co concise and very like direct way of, the, I think saying, the, the kinds of changes which um, countries like Russia and China and India are at the forefront of, of pushing. Um, and yeah, I think the, the most interesting part of this, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts and others' thoughts, other people's thoughts are um, what he's talking about in terms of these mechanisms of, peop of the people, um, mechanisms for like people's rule and for the people to participate in um, in the development and uplift of their country and how he talks about democracy as well, um, which I think is very, you know, it may seem, it may sound very uh, counterintuitive to how countries like Russia are portrayed as being the most undemocratic and totalitarian, um, but actually like what is at the heart of the kinds of changes that Putin is speaking about have to do with not just the international changes, but also the, the sort of new models of democracy which are emerging in the countries which have been um, the most targeted by the West um, for colonialism and exploitation and neocolonialism and underdevelopment. And I think the other thing that stood out was how he talked about how national development also means the uplift of individual people and that to talk about national development is not in contradiction to um, the individual person and their, you know, their rights and their, um, you know, the possibilities that are available to an individual person. Um, but let me try to stop sharing my screen. Yeah, I'd love to hear other people's thoughts. What was the title of uh, his speech? Sorry. It was at a forum called Strong Ideas for a New Time. 
I just wanted to, to know. I just wanted to say that uh, it seems like um, if we are to think of a new world system that more more that is more suitable to the objective conditions that face world humanity right now, it would start with something like what Putin is saying in the speech with a rejection of a world system based on Western values, but then a creative synthesis of the progressive elements. Because like Doc was saying in his introduction also, it's not like there is nothing in the history of uh, you know, Europe, but also in the American revolution, elements that need to be preserved or which give the people in these countries uh, the method to understand where they come from and what place uh, they belong to in the in, in the sort of world stage. But you can only get to the essence of those revolutionary elements if you first have the ability to reject what the West tries to impose on the world and then be allowed to reach a new synthesis that is suitable for these times. And to a large extent, what Putin, when he talks about democracy um, in the special context of Russia, and you know, with everywhere else, people, even in China, and uh, after the pre-independent Indian state, I think all of them had this element in common. They were trying to figure out what this looks like, but after having rejected what was imposed on the world. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say that to start the conversation. You know, um, I, I think that, um, you know, this uh, brief speech by Putin represents an important, if not fundamental, ideological shift in the Russian state. Um, for close to 30 years with, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Russian state was conceptualized in, by some, by some, in bourgeois, liberal, and social democratic terms. That's why there was all this confusion of can Russia fit into the West? Can Russia be Western? Can Russia be a member of NATO? Now it seems that all of that is off. And through bitter experience, the Russian politically elite have concluded that not only will they not ever be integrated into the West, what is called the West, <coughs> um, what they call the golden billion. I think in some ways they're also talking <coughs> about the white world constituting a billion people uh, in a world of 8 billion. But um, now <coughs> Russia 
forgive me, Russia sees itself as a part of the Afro-Asiatic world. And this is the key move. And the Afro-Asiatic world <coughs> views Russia as part of it. This is hugely important. The West to a nation practically was involved in the transatlantic slave trade, colonialism in Africa and Asia, and the colonial partitioning in particular, the most brutal partitioning of a continent in human history, the, the colonial partitioning of Africa. Russia, India, China were not a part of any of that. So, it seems that Putin is saying that Russia's natural position in the world is with the Afro-Asiatic world. And it's true. This attempt by Gorbachev and that uh, group of people to make Russia Western was an abject failure. First, because the West never accepted Slavic people as white, and this is a huge thing. And this is throughout, you, you see it in Yugoslavia, you see it in Czechoslovakia, Slovaks versus Czechs, Poles versus Slavs. I mean, it, it is a very deep issue within Europe, but nonetheless, what Putin is saying, is that Russia's natural place is not in the West, but in the Afro-Asiatic world. The other thing that he is saying, that a revolutionary transition, and these are his words, is underway. And I agree 300%. It seems like maybe Putin had been a member of the live streams of the free school, but we have been saying this for some time. Uh, that a new world is coming into being, uh, you know, even as we use slogans and, and formulations from King, a world house, uh, the end of the age of Europe, the beginning of the age of humanity, um, blessed are the peacemakers, we're all bound in a common um, a circumstance, a common garment of destiny. You know, all of this that we constantly talk about. Um, and so it is true. And um, yeah, we, we are going to be witnesses in the Baldwinian sense, James Baldwin sense, witnesses of a new world being born, a new humanity coming out of this. Uh, and who among the American people will say in no uncertain terms that this is good and we must get on the right side of history. So I, that's some of the thoughts that I draw from it.
अमेरिका and how it has been constantly waging financial and military war against the rest of humanity and all of this has been in the name of democracy and it makes me think that the question of democracy cannot be thought of as the end for which the world strives but there is a higher aspiration for people and the way putin sees democracy and the way the rest of the world sees democracy is as a is as a means to solve real problems of hunger and poverty and the question of and i mean these questions are are not at all the in the priorities of the ruling elite in america who keep talking about democracy with no end but i think it seems from putin's speech that he is also aware that these uh um that more and more people are aware in the world that there is a transition going on people are coming to terms with the fact that the way democracy has been preached and practiced in the western world is mm-hmm. um it's basically a sham <laughs> and the way forward is is to not get stuck with the procedures of 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 democracy but to ask what purpose it serves yeah Yeah, I thought one of the really interesting sentences was when Putin says the underlying globalist and pseudo-liberal ideology is becoming increasingly more like totalitarianism and is restraining creative endeavor and free historical creation. Because yeah, I think the common charge like levied against Russia is that it's totalitarian, that it's a dictatorship, whereas I think increasingly like others have been saying the people of the world are seeing i guess the inequality in international relations and the fact that like the american world order is a totalitarian world order where it's unipolar like it's unilateral and everything is just decided by essentially the american ruling class and so i feel like it also yeah points out i guess the inconsistency in like this pseudo liberal ideology and that it is like the greatest enemy i guess of human freedom because entire countries are not able to develop um or even exercise like sovereignty which is the basic i guess structure of freedom you know in a lot of this it's ironic uh because this new um configuration of a world relationships came so quickly it seems and it seems that the whole breakdown of the west and the reconfiguration of asia this is very important of what asia is and asian unity comes out of the um the war in the ukraine a war uh provoked by the united states and the west but for which they were not prepared and they thought 
that they had enough uh, of the propaganda, uh, control of, the, of world propaganda and information that they could convince Africa and Asia to follow them. And the opposite has been the case. And now we're on the cusp of what could be one of the most devastating economic crises in the last 70 years. Um, because of these sanctions and, and how these sanctions uh, further uh, accelerated inflation and how inflation is leading to stagnation. And this, you know, this mix of inflation and recession and debt, um, you know, it's an unbelievable situation for the people I'm saying, for our people to imagine. But then the world moves forward. New alliances, you know, for example, in Iran, the president of Turkey, the president of Russia, Putin, and the president of Iran all met, you know? And then all kinds of new relationships which go against the West, go against US unipolar domination of the world. So we're seeing it being broken apart. While in the United States, we're facing again, perhaps the greatest political crisis in the nation's history. A nation politically, and I, I don't know how you guys see it, I, you know, from my life's experience, a nation where the ruling class is incapable of ruling and hence, a crisis of the state and a nation politically falling apart. It's, can you hear me okay? Yeah, um, this just makes me think about like what or how people respond to in crisis. Like, because like I was, when it's obvious to people who even aren't politically savvy or even generally want to think about like economics or the world, um, it's still obvious a crisis is happening in the States, whether that be solely economic or moral mm -hmm. or um, it just seems like kind of like where either I or somebody else is standing, you can, there's things that are obviously happening that are structurally and philosophically wrong um, with this country right now. And it just makes me think about, or at least in terms of what you're saying, with these new alliances, um, how people respond in crisis. But then I was also thinking about like a new synthesis, how synthesis or syntheses occur Mm -hmm. um because and um i guess just in relation to how we talked about king as being the father of a new nation a thought that came into my mind in the week was how like again like if martin luther king had lived and wasn't assassinated um he would be able to uh or like 
maybe just a hypothetical like thought experiment it could possibly be that he could sort of guide um a, the generation to following you know into a different development or like america could have developed a little bit differently to the point where it, we wouldn't have seen this demoralization complete demoralization and travesty of the working class mm-hmm. or um what and that's either white or black and i was just thinking about that since um because though he was killed his ideas are still um available if they're to be thought about or if they're to be spoken about and so it's true that the intelligentsia and the ruling class attack ideas that are um, founded in the Black radical tradition and founded in these things that um, actually developed the human beings in America. Because I was, another thing that was interesting was how, like the conversations that we had after the Howard Thurman conference um, about, well, how did religion, well, not just religion and stuff, but theology and maybe philosophy develop because of this um, India, China, or no, I mean, India, Afro-America thing. Um, and what that would also mean in terms of, you know, the stage of like thinking, um, whether that be with James Lawson or King, um, how was, and why was nonviolence um, both, a strategy for struggle that was intellectual not intellectual in the sense like you can read about it but it was like a a framework of thinking a worldview um as well as an action that you take and things like that and i think that this thing about synthesizing is definitely important in times of crisis but i also think that it's like Like, I'm just, I guess I'm just excited about how or what we actually, like, what, how we're understanding our, like, how we are actually thinking about this time and how people will actually move forward with the body of knowledges that we do have available. Um, but You know, th- that was a very uh, powerful formulation, uh, Serafina. Synthesis in a time of crisis. And the question I'll throw back to you is, do crises call forth syntheses? I think that's interesting because because it was like, okay, is the boys the synthesis or is the boys right. helping? Well, that's yeah. a, we're gonna get to that in a minute. No, but I just thought it was similar in the in that. Um, but I don't want to kind of like what I would say just offhand, like it's just you know, synthesis can I feel like they're like a part of the process. That's what I would say, but only because of like how we think about, you know, dialectics. Um, but that's what I would say to that clearly. 
I also wanted to because uh, Doc, you were talking about the state, and in 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 Putin's speech, he talks about the state and new mechanisms for having more uh, people's involvement in the state machinery. Sort of what I read, but um, yeah, this concept of the state needs to be clarified in our times because in a lot of ways, I think. i mean the idea that the state is the agency of the people towards more uh, towards a um, towards social justice but also economic uh, justice but also towards peace the state being the instrument of the people is a concept that uh, is heavily attacked today and instead you have people putting forward the idea that activism or anti establishment activism is the real way towards social justice because the state is always antithetical towards the people need but this is um um i mean this is the same sort of attack that you know people have on indian freedom struggle on the civil rights movement the purpose of it being to weaken any uh movement of people towards genuine freedom and democracy and i feel like the crisis in america in a lot of ways is a crisis or the unraveling the decline of the american state because uh, we have here a ruling class that has managed to i guess divorce the machinery of the state from actual um needs of the people and so on but yeah i just wanted to say that that this is definitely something people attack even in you know uh, the people who criticize india and the indian freedom struggle their contention like you were also saying is that oh the indian state was not able to deal with caste and all these things whereas what we should be saying is that we need a stronger state to actually be able to deal with these problems because the state is the only agency that can actually deal with these problems um but yeah mm -hmm. yeah i think um i'm looking at some of the comments but one of the i think one of the i guess to what other people are saying as well is um like how how will americans respond to all of this both the crisis within america but also the international situation and i know that people you know we've talked a lot about the the king speech remaining awake to a great revolution but um i'm curious about what people think in terms of you know because of everything that has happened in the past several decades the you know deindustrialization the demoralization of the people the disappointment of the people of the american people um like does that i think one of the like the challenges is the possibility that you know even though americans are turning against their own ruling elite will they be too i, I don't know like too skeptical or too cynical i, I suppose like is cynicism itself a a Like, could it be significant enough of like a a kind of force that you know it makes people 
basically mm, sort of yeah basically skeptical about like all of these changes that are taking place the role that that the american people can play in relation to all of this um and part of the reason why i asked that is because um nabila has a question about about putin where she asks um is putin going to bomb his way into his into his goals and is the stupid ass us going to keep giving bombs to the other side meaning ukraine to keep fighting back and this is what i meant about apocalyptic fools because i think there's a way of interpreting putin as being you know hypocritical you know um basically that he is just like any other ruler of a country who is saying all these lofty things but in actuality is just you know practicing the same kinds of like the war you know the kinds of oppression that the rulers that the ruling class in the west is practicing um and i think you know we've talked about the the actual historical context that led up to the U the russia ukraine conflict um and how it was provoked by the united states and nato but i think it does raise a question for me about um yeah just sort of yeah how people are going to how how are the american people going to respond and will they seize the opportunity um to make that synthesis as as people have been saying um another question i had was you know we're sort of looking at this current moment and comparing it to pre like the sort of previous period of world history with like the cold war but especially the rise of the socialist uh the socialist world system and um the national liberation movements of the sort of mid 20th century um i think part of it is like this goes back to our conversation from last week about the need for new categories but i think one of my questions has been you know can we describe this in similar categories to you know what was used back then of you know the rise of like world socialism or something or is it is it more necessary to describe this in new terms um and if so like what will those will those terms be because i don't know if you can say this is exactly the same to you know even doc what you were describing you know, like back then it seemed like socialism was on its way it was going to happen soon but i think you know i feel like there are pretty important differences between this current period as opposed to back then um and like what those are but yeah i was actually thinking also similar and i'm not going to answer the question but i had another question because i guess it's still on my mind i i guess we'll get to that um later in the conversation um last week we were talking about how lenin was like well i can't remember exactly what it was but like it, to me it's now like lenin was one stage devois is another stage that's a basic no, kind of thing. serfina we were talking about the two aspects of okay. the possible synthesis you know we were asking what was primary what was ascendant in that dialectic does that make sense i can see that yeah it makes sense that's what i think that's what you might be referring to okay mm, yes maybe only because, only because okay i'm excited to continue talking about it um but i guess i was thinking about just like kind of in terms of jeremiah's question like 
what does the things like democracy mean uh that kind of thing like the like the cat of socialism democracy communism like what do they uh like because in one sense in my mind it's not a certainty like i can answer that question with full definitions and this is how it will be kind of thing um because in some ways that's like it'll kind of in the process kind of work itself out in a sense but I do think that I was just thinking and maybe it is a question of terminology but maybe it also is also a question of like the philosophical basis in which these things like what are the morals and philosophical basis ideological basis in which those things coming into being stand upon so um but yeah i yeah so i just wanted to add to jeremiah's question i guess again why martin luther king is important but so yeah wow (laughs) i mean that's i i think i think you put you put the question on the table. I mean, you, you put it as, I mean, in its stark form. Do the American people have the ideological, philosophical, and moral wherewithal to overcome their own ruling class? And I think The other question that goes hand in glove with what you're saying, you probably made that point too, is that if it is to happen, a new way of thinking, a new synthesis, both at the scientific level and at the level of mass action. And of course, you know, I I can see clearly what you said, you know, in in a lot of ways, you know, we in the free school, we try to operate on these multiple levels, scientific, the moral imperative, the historical inevitability questions, and then the question of the people. And, you know, that's a hard question. And that is why uh, revolutionaries must be equipped with a sociological uh, understanding. We need sociology very badly, you know, Du Bois called sociology the study of man, which means humanity. Um, And uh, we just don't know quite yet. We know the American people are in a state of rebellion. We know the American people are angry. We know that the American people have turned against every major institution in this society. It's never happened in the history of Poland. Never has this come up this way. And and of course, if we look back at the 19th and 20th century history of the United States, there has never been anything like this. This ruling class could rule with the assurance that the majority of American people accepted their rule as democratic, the rule of the ruling class is democratic, and accepted that, um, that the institutions of the country, the Congress, 
the, the press, the academy, the Supreme Court, the economy, all Wall Street, all of these major institutions ultimately operated in the interests of the nation and of the people. Now it is the opposite. It is the opposite. And it's, I guess I would put it this way, a breathtaking turn. I mean, it happened in a lot of ways so quickly, so quickly. At least it appeared to be so quickly, maybe it wasn't. But then, you know, your question, Serafina, is not what is, but the, what, what this suggests about the future and of struggle. How do you proceed at this time? Uh, I was going to say, uh, um, so regarding Jeremiah's question, what he was talking about, I think like this issue of people not being able to to rise to the question. I mean, it's a serious question of the crisis of leadership yeah. in in the American people. And I mean, now I'm thinking uh, in terms of what we started the conversation today with all these attacks in America the attacks on the revolutionary traditions in America, they are, they have probably played a big role in severing people from their history in the same way that the American ruling class and its ideological forces have done the same all over the world. It yes. seems that its effects are also to be seen in America, that, you know, people do not have a genuine connection to their history and therefore, the question of leadership is, I mean, it's a very, um, it's almost answered entirely top down today. There is no way for people to form leadership from themselves. And uh, I think this question of, uh, of the cynicism that people face, I think, um, well, I'm thinking that, you know, this question of cynicism, I mean, it, it is an important question today, but I'm also thinking about the like all the revolutionary movements that we have to see from history we have seen that you know this question of cynicism probably it's a different question today than from what it was a hundred years back but for instance in the indian context in the indian freedom struggle you know there were these big divisions within the freedom struggle and you know there were people who were called extremists or nationalists and on the other hand there were people who were called moderates or or you know liberals and, and I mean, they were the same force at that point. And, you know, Nehru talks about the role that the moderates played to a big extent that, you know, they were really suffering from this problem where, you know, they, um, um, you know, they considered um, any act to be a questionable act because, you know, they suffered from the fear of the consequences of, of that. And I think, and I'm paraphrased, and I think he would say that, you know, the liberals, fail to do anything in order to make sure that they make no mistakes and i think this is like this is an equivalent of the cynicism we see today i'm not saying that the liberals in that context is the same as the liberals here but i do think that there are some common um you know strands connecting the from the two the one in india and the one here because people are like i i think the fact that young people all around feel this sense of cynicism 
is testament to the fact that the liberal ideology has really been pernicious. It has really taken hold of people's imagination where people are afraid of, I think to some extent, afraid of asking important questions whose answers might not be comfortable. And I think this is a, I think the work of the, the work that we're trying to do, it's really trying to get to these assumptions so that they can be answered. So the world can move forward. Mm -hmm. The other thing I also wanted to say was uh, like, you know, what Purva was saying regarding the, the, the attack on the state everywhere in the world, except in America. <laughs> and and that's the thing, like all the the anti-establishment forces in you know India and elsewhere, I'm sure, the common point that they all agree on is the legitimacy of of the American state. It, it's the legitimacy of imperialism. I mean, they don't really believe that imperialism is at play anymore. But on all questions of of the neocolonial I mean, the policies and ideologies all over the world, they do agree on that. So the question of, of you know, which establishment are you trying to stand up to? And, and you know, which is the establishment that actually holds ideological sway over the world? I think this is the, the question that more people should be asking. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, something that came to mind was also, I think, like we talked about this so much in free school and at events, but the need for, for culture, but specifically stuff like the blues and the sorrow songs, as Du Bois called it, the music of a disappointed people, um, referring to Afro-America. But, you know, that that sensibility that I think that basic approach to life and sort of being able to come to terms with, you know, everything that has been both in your personal life, but also on like a more national or society wide level, everything that has disappointed the people, but not wallowing in it, but sort of using that to go beyond it. Um, and yeah, it just made me think of that, but also this thing about the state too. Um, yeah, it just reminded me of how and I think I, yeah, we talked about it last week, but, you know, Du Bois's, under, du Bois's understanding of, you know, the, what he called like the science of human action um, and sociology and this new social science, which he was creating and envisioning. Um, but it applies both for the governance of a state, but also as, as I think as Doc has been saying, the, the pathway towards, you know, a people's movement um, of a new type, because you know, on the on the one hand, with the state, you know, Du Bois was looking at the Soviet Union and other countries and saying, you know, what they're doing is, you know, it's like this new kind of practice of of a kind of new kind of science um, to lead a people towards um, like out of poverty and to give people, um, you know, a sense of like participating in the governing of society, but also, like I. I was just rereading stuff that Du Bois wrote about sociology and his attempts to create this new kind of sociology where he talks about, um, in regards to Black people, what the kind of sociology he, env he envisioned was not just a kind of static picture of Black people, 
but what he called like a continuous moving picture of the people um, and like their institutions and their thoughts and their interactions with the world, um, as well as, you know, the sort of underlying questions of, you know, the economy of capitalism and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I, it made it made me think of that. Um, and we also we do have a lot of a lot of comments as well. So there's a rich discussion in response to the Putin speech. Um, unless someone else has a point to make. Okay. Um, yeah, Danny asked earlier who is included in the golden billion, um, which I think I don't know if you would agree with this, but it seems like he's talking about like both the ruling elite of the Western countries, but also those who, at least for the time being, have benefited from like the present arrangement of like the international world system. Um, although I don't know if you can say that like the American people are benefiting from imperialism at this point, but I guess. Um, I, think it, yeah. I think it's a, I, I take it as a sat satirical term where the Russians are talking about the West seeing itself as the privileged elite of the world. Right. And so a billion would pretty much be Europe, North America, and New Zealand and Australia, you know, the white world. It's about a billion people who right. would call themselves Westerners or white. But I think um, in the sense that they are supposed to have all of the privilege and rule the world, and they have all of the intelligence. So I think it's that type of satirical term. Right. Okay. Um, Nathan Braza says, uh, Putin seems like he's setting forth a new standard for how civilizations will be judged, not by their military might, but in effective governance and how well the people are taken care, are cared for and taken into the process of democracy. These countries that Putin says are sovereign enough are going to be the new sites of experiments in democracy and become models for the rest of the world. And um, this is really exciting, both in terms of democracy and international relations and also at home. Um, Alice says, what has struck me through our examinations of Putin is the fact that he cares for and is responsible to the American, to the Russian people. As Shambarta said, um, that they're suffering their livelihoods and their development. And when Putin speaks about democracy, he is challenging the notion that democracy comes from the Western elite. Instead, as I understand the, section, the selection that we read, uh, Putin is saying that democracy will have to come from the people and that the state has a fundamental role in protecting this development of its yeah. people and their democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, Nathan also adds, my fear is that the American state is going to drag the people down as it collapses. We can't let them be left uh, left behind. We can't let the American people be left behind in this moment of change. Uh, Emily says, Putin's speech reminds me of our continuing discussion in the free school of defining the theoretical framework necessary to explain the crisis today and the way out. Du Bois's science and sociology rather than political economy and all the ways that so-called Marxists understand political economy. Armed with Du Bois's science, you can understand the critical ideological shift in Putin and in Russia, one that breaks from the West and instead ushers in a new world order based in the Russian people's 
as well as the world's people's movement towards people's democracy. Um, but without Du Bois and sociology, you will believe that Russia and China are quote imperialist and that they are other forms of Western capitalism. Um, and then she's just affirming what I think was said earlier in terms of the question is, do the American people have the ideological tools to overcome their ruling elite? Yeah. Um, and then Todd Doherty says, amen. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that is the huge question. Um, you know, um, I guess we have to acknowledge that we, the American people, come into this moment with severe deficits, maybe more in some ways, I won't say, some ways more than many other countries of the world. And it's, can we rise to the occasion? That is the thing like Nathan asked, will the US state drag the American people down with it? <coughs> <coughs> Could I just um, uh, transition into this question raised by Emily of sociology and political yeah. economy? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think about it a little bit differently than uh, Emily puts it. Uh, I don't see it as either or. I see this as... Um, I see political economy as an older and earlier form of social science. You know, um, if you take, you know, the first major work in political economy, at least that's what people think, is Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, published in 1776. But there were about 50 years of other kinds of political economy, people trying to figure out trade and money and exchange rates and other things. Uh, Adam Smith kind of brought it all together. So uh, in a lot of ways, uh, if you take uh, Du Bois's Philadelphia Negro as the first real sociological work, uh, and that is in 1899, so you're talking about maybe 130 years between the um, crystallization of political economy and then the uh, appearance and crystallization of what is sociology. Uh, but before that, there was no sociology. There was no uh, science of human action, to use Du Bois's formulation. And that is a very, very important because it is, we would use the language today, a science of human agency, of human intentionality. And in that way, in a lot of ways, you know, uh, some of the questions of philosophy and consciousness and intentionality uh, uh, intersect with questions of sociology as conceptualized by Du Bois. But, I agree with Emily here that it is difficult in political economy to discover 
the foundations of human agency, of human action. Political economy and economics, which is its, you know, its offshoot today, is, is really more or less looking at um, categories such as money, employment, interest, um, uh, inflation. You know, in other words, the categories of political economy are structural categories, categories that deal with the structure and movement of, um, of, um, of economic uh, events. And, and political economy attempts to explain that, even up to and including Marxist political economy and dust capital. That's what it sets out to do. And it doesn't do very much more than that. But that's a hell of a lot. I mean, I'm not trivial, that's a lot. But then there's this huge gap. And that has to do with a science of human action, a sociology in other words. Now, Does, so, does sociology supersede political economy? Or, and, and Emily, I'm interested in your take on this. Does sociology give us a way to rework political economy? In other words, classical political economy and economics is pretty much what we know of it, which you know, I've kind of said what the categories generally are. But can there be a reworking of political economy, a sociological reworking, or a reworking of political economy in light of sociology? And again, this brings us to the question of a new synthesis. Uh, just like Du Bois said, philosophy and history could be combined to produce sociology, where bodies of knowledge find ways and their practitioners find ways of, uh, of, uh, of, of coming together, of creating something new. Um, now, and here is, a, you know, again, Emily, just, you know, uh, going off, you know, building off of your statement. Um, the pressing need of the American people at this time and of a movement that could be developed in this time is not for a structural analysis once again of the capitalist economy. You know, we've heard it so much that it's second nature. We know what the discourse is. We know what the logic is. The question is what is to be done? And to that question, a sociology is required and not the sociology of liberal uh, American academics. 
We're talking about Du Boisian sociology. Uh, I would just parenthetically wish to say that in my opinion, while sociology is all throughout Du Bois's work, he's always thinking socio sociologically, even when he's thinking historically. But in the Du Boisian sense, to the question, what is to be done? And that is not an abstract question. That is a question of what can the people do? Where are the people at in a moment, a particular moment? And what is possible? That is a sociological question. That is a quintessential sociological question. In fact, where, and this, this is, I think, and you all can tell me what you think or anybody listening. You see, faced with, um, how could you say, the ossification of its categories, ossification becoming uh, inflexible, hardened, uh, uncreative, you can't do much with the categories, but what you've always done with them. Faced with that, uh, academics um, of all types, beginning in the late 19th century, separated political economy from history and philosophy and made it a, um, uh, an area of mathematical uh, modeling. And that's what we have today. You know, most, and I, you know, quotes again, sophisticated uh, academic economists are also into mathematically modeling the economy. And, you okay, I mean, you know, like the, like the Delphonics said, then you blow my mind, this, you blew my mind, okay. My mind is blown, you're very sophisticated, but it brings us no closer to what is to be done and what will the people do. So increasingly, the human factor has been eliminated from economics and from political economy. As to the left, it is so apparent that not just now, but for some time, for some decades, the left has not been able to discover or even find the American people. You know, it's an interesting thing. So much so that they just gave up on the people or even discovering where the people are, what the people are thinking. So increasingly, the left, which became in, well, increasingly situated in academies and, you know, in universities and uh, graduate seminars and erudition, uh, became hostile to the people, which went against even the, the initial impetus of Marxism and the left. It was the people. But now the left 
can't find the people, don't care about the people and have become hostile to the people. But this, in my opinion, is also rooted in a, um, not just an ideological, but a theoretical framing of things purely from the standpoint of political economy. Let me, if I could just say one, oh, just on that point. So economics goes towards economic modeling, but then sociology always had the potential and sometimes actualized that potential of multiple methods of study. You take the Philadelphia Negro, multiple methods of studying a single population. This is very important because as we have found out that there is not only one way to the, um, to understanding the people. Um, is, is it right if I just say one other thing? Okay. Um, we need political economy. We need economic analysis. But we don't need it at the expense of sociology. You know, we need a broader, larger, uh, categorically more extensive, methodologically more elaborate and eloquent way of scientifically studying the circumstances of the people and the people themselves. You're not gonna get that from political economy. And I think everybody knows that. So apropos Serafina's point and Jeremiah's point, will cynicism undermine the possibility of the type of action that people have to take if we are not to be drugged down by, this, by the uh, current state and by the current ruling elite. You know, um, to that question, the scientific answers are more than not found in sociological analysis. Hence the concept of a people's movement of a new type. The left cannot think in futuristic terms because they can't see the moment, they can't see the people. They really can't, and I'm not putting anybody down. It is the methodology, the knowledge categories out of which they're operating it does not allow them to see, but only in very narrow ways. You know? Um, and so they must, in order to find an answer to the, this moment and to the future, go back to methods that were uh, vibrant and appropriate for one situation or one moment and say that must be applied in the same way at this moment. I mean, that's 
That's a tragic dogmatism. And people say, well, I'm burned out after a year and a half. Well, you would be burned out because you can't find any answers in that logic. And so there must be a creative opening up of these questions. And uh, I, I'll just end here. And to Emily's point, I wouldn't be so, dis I mean, I wouldn't say, well, we got to get rid of political economy. I don't, I don't think you're putting it like that and substitute uh, 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 sociology, Du Boisian sociology for it. I think we're talking about a synthesis or better yet, a reworking of political economy using the more robust and creative tools of, um, of uh, sociology in the Du Bois sense. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I'm I'm processing what you're saying, but also it rem like I think I I said it before, but I've been trying to look back at stuff that Du Bois wrote about sociology and his plan, like his sort of vision of what it could be, and um, there is a chapter in Du Bois's third autobiography called his soliloquy, where he talks about First, um, this is like, so he's talking about the era of like the Great Depression and the New Deal, but he talks about how he was at, at Atlanta University and um, he had a course where he was teaching uh, the Communist Manifesto and he was trying to understand it along with his students, but sort of concurrently with that, he talks about his, um, his attempt to revive his uh, his program for a study of, of the Negro people of Afro-America. And um, yeah, is, is it okay if I just read, read just like a few paragraphs from it? Because I think it kind of, to me, it gives like a sort of concrete sort of framework for what Du Bois was mm -hmm. after and what he was trying to accomplish and how that was, that vision of what this kind of new social science could be was um, destroyed because Du Bois was fired um, from Atlanta and the possibilities for this program was never achieved. Um, yeah, so he says, um, he says, this should not be the conventional type of quote, social study an instantaneous photograph of a sample group, but it should be planned so as eventually to approach the stature of a total study, a total study of a complete situation continuously photographed and re-photographed and measured and remeasured, so that our knowledge of the vast and momentous social experiment in race relations now making in the United States would attain a completeness and authority that would be unquestioned and unquestionable and available in the post-war world, uh, the post-World War I world, which will surely need this sort of information. And I believe that here was a chance not only to serve the Negro race and America, but also to serve the world and social science in a new way. And then I'm just gonna go to the end of the chapter where this is after <coughs> he had been, after the, basically he was fired from Atlanta and the possibility of uh, implementing this like longer term study of black people 
was um, destroyed, but he says, um, there was another loss in the giving up of this plan, which I've never mentioned. Here was an unprecedented chance for an experiment in sociology for measuring and classifying human action on a scale never before attempted. It would be reasonably sure of adequate funds and the best trained cooperation nationwide, not worldwide criticism. On such a basis, on such a base, a real science of sociology could have been built. The opportunity was surrendered and the whole science of sociology has suffered. I, I even had projected a path of scientific approach. I was going to plot out beside the world of physical law, a science of sociology which measured, quote, the limits of chance and human action. If this field proved narrow or non-existent, then world law was proven. But if not, the resultant chance was what men had always regarded as free will. Meantime, as students of human action hesitated and waited, psychology measured nervous reaction. Physics merging with chemistry rose to enormous accomplishment and helped by vast provision of mathematics recast our whole conception of the universe. Finally, biology revealed new realms of what we now can name as nothing but chance beyond the area of conscious mind. Sociology has been bypassed and reduced to social work. Um, and th I think this is going back to also when we were reading Russia and America and that very dense uh, yeah, passage on like law and chance. But what Du Bois, to my understanding, what he was saying was that, um, you know, Part of the reason why sociology up until that point had failed or been ultimately non-existent was because the sort of social scientists of like August Comte and those people were, they were um, in, in Du Bois's words, hesitant to actually address this question directly of if we're trying to develop a scientific understanding of society, um, does that mean that essentially that there is no, that basically humans, that human life is governed by these kinds of rigid social laws and that there's no possibility of human agency of chance as he calls it. And for that reason, like sort of sociology devolved into this kind of metaphysical, like not really clear way of describing so like society. And instead, so Du Bois comes in and he says, no, the, the purpose of this is we want to understand as he says, human action and human deeds and what drives them. And so what he was envisioning was this kind of like sociology as wanting to understand the relationship between social laws, you know, the kind of patterns that drive the development of human history, but the relationship of those laws with always the possibility of human chance and or if, of human free will and agency. Right. Um, and and as you were saying, it's not something which totally rejects political economy, but instead incorporates it into a larger vision of a comprehensive, you can only understand that question by having what Du Bois was hoping for, which is a comprehensive understanding of, of Black people. Um, but it was through that question that you would arrive at a more concrete, like a concrete understanding of that relationship between you know, these kinds of social laws and of human agency. Um, but yeah, it was interesting that also it was the, the rise of socialism and of, you know, him reading Karl Marx in the New Deal era that was kind of 
also encouraging him to investigate this question. Yeah, you know, and uh, again, if I might say something, um, political economy and, and really radical or Marxist political economy privileges law over human agency uh, and inevitability over, um, how would you put it, um, what is a dialectical relationship between law or inevitability and human agency. And it can't, and, and Du Bois is right, it's not gonna be one or the other. And sociology is best positioned to talk about human agency, not blind to law or economic patterns, but that human agency, uh, and, and all that that means, I mean, it is a huge question because we're talking about art. I think you mentioned art and science. No, Chambarta mentioned all of these things. What constitutes the human being and how the human being uh, changes his environment, her environment. This is the key thing. Um, that's why I think that um, Many Marxists have never gotten Martin Luther King right. They've never gotten Du Bois right because it's hard to acknowledge critically the, um, the importance of, um, of Du Bois, but you can't acknowledge it if you are dogmatically stuck in one body of knowledge and one scientific procedure. One has to see how knowledge and science and scientific procedures dialectically develop and emerge over historical time. And um, hence going forward in the United States, what is the revolutionary path? How, what will be the mechanisms of people's engagement with the state, uh, those questions are definitely questions of people doing their thing and people acting and so on, irrespective of science or, or sociology. But to have a vision of where all this is going and to suggest and to infuse that vision into mass movements, into people's institutions, into civil society. You have to have sociology. Otherwise, you're not talking to the people. You're talking at the people. You're talking past the people. To talk, I mean, really to have a language even for this time, you need just what Du Bois was striving for. And I think it is so interesting, and I think he was absolutely accurate that the possibilities of sociology were killed in their cradle, uh, uh, probably uh, by the early part of the 20th century.
Now, of course, this brings up, can I, I don't want to talk too much. Nori, am I talking too much? Please tell us. Uh, That's good. It's like flushing everything out. Okay. A lot. Just bust in on because you know, uh, sometimes I take the issue of chance too far. But anyway, um, you know, this, this thing of Lenin Du Bois or Du Bois Lenin. Um, and in a lot of ways, the two names are signifiers for bodies of knowledge and applications of knowledge. You know, um, no one uh, was more committed to knowledge and the application of scientific knowledge than Lenin was. In fact, his whole thing was that um, science could be, could, pardon me, science could be applied. And by science, we're talking now philosophical and social science to political questions. Nobody did it better than Lenin. It was, you know, um, that's why it's such a travesty that he is not seen as a philosopher and is a great philosopher um, because he was attempting to apply philosophical categories to political events and political practice. Now, very huge project. I mean, that's not easy to do. Uh, and the fact of the matter is most philosophers will retreat into academic philosophy rather than to do that, what Lenin did. So Lenin is a signifier, a symbol of a body of knowledge, but a way of, of, uh, of applying knowledge to revolutionary conditions. Du Bois is similar, although Du Bois represents a nation that with the, the Civil War and Reconstruction had gone through a second revolution, but a second revolution that was incomplete, in fact, one could say defeated with the overturning of Reconstruction. So Du Bois has to reconstruct knowledge in the face of a counter-revolutionary onslaught in particular against black folk. So that's why you see it in the Philadelphia Negro, you know, sociology with the intent of freedom, not sociology with the intent of just accumulating information, sociology with the intent of freedom, the objective of freedom, you know, I think his two greatest sociological works, by the way, are the Philadelphia Negro and the Souls of Black Folk. But everything Du Bois did, the purpose was freedom, emancipation. So Du Bois is constructing and applying knowledge for the sake of freeing first Black people, but the nation in a democratic manner. 
So Du Bois and Lenin are both committed to the application of knowledge for the sake of freedom. However, there are important and significant differences. Du Bois, pardon, let me start with Lenin. Lenin operates from outside of the working class. And he proudly acknowledges that. The party, which is his principal mechanism for the infusion of knowledge into the, into the masses. It is the party, okay? Lenin committed to knowledge, the application of knowledge. What is the mechanism for the application of knowledge? The party, the Bolshevik party, the vanguard party. But the party comes from outside of the proletariat. Left to its own, according to Lenin, the proletariat is capable at its best of spontane spontaneous rebellion. Guided and purposeful revolutionary action would require the leadership of a party, okay? Du Bois never proposed a party as the principal mechanism of the diffusion of knowledge. He, like Lenin, they both agree that scientific knowledge must be brought into the day-to-day -day life of working people. They were not elitist in the sense of only a small elite can know. I think Lenin may be a little more elitist than Du Bois. Du Bois more broadly democratic, you know, more broadly democratic. So his idea of a talented, educated um, a group of black people who he would finally call a guiding 100, who would come not just from educated or academic uh, people, but from those who both had it here and in the heart. Now, I believe that one of the sources of a vast tactical difference between Lenin and Du Bois, one of the sources of that, I think conditions have a lot to do with it. You know, Lenin was, I mean, pardon me, Russia was very authoritarian. Lenin and all of those were forced out of the country or underground. They were an immigrant, they were uh, uh, in Germany and other places. And, and so, uh, there was a gap between them and their own country. Uh, du Bois found a way by going to the South, getting a job at Atlanta University, going out and studying, living among the people, of being close to the people. Now, here's my point. The methods of knowledge were vastly different, hence, Du Bois's tactics and strategies were very different because of his sociological uh, insights, his sociological methods, his approaches. 
he saw the people better and more clearly than Lenin saw the Russian proletariat, I would, I would propose. Uh, that's not to say anything bad about Lenin, the conditions. And so the conditions of struggle in Russia predisposed them away from sociology and more towards political economy and philosophy. Du Bois closer to the people, and you can see it in his novels and everything else, was able to develop richer methods of understanding. And hence, I think this is, you know, and some of this is speculative. The relevance of Du Bois for now is the preeminence in Du Bois' sociology of the struggle for democracy and during the Cold War in a state, a nation state where the state was against democracy. And hence to rally the masses to the banner of democracy is to rally them to the banner of fighting their own ruling class. I, maybe I didn't make, I haven't, I could have made myself less, I could have made myself more clear. But the question of the party for, for Du Bois was not the pressing question that it was for Lenin. Lenin's mechanism for the infusion of scientific knowledge into the proletariat was the party. For Du Bois, that was not necessary. It was not a necessity. Maybe it could have taken that path for some who joined the communist party in the 20s and 30s and on and on. It was a way of doing it, but it was not the inevitable way of doing it and might not be after the Black Freedom Movement of the 60s and that model of organization and mobilization of the people, it might not be a necessity. And if not properly understood, could be a distraction from the question of building what I call a movement of a new type. Um, so I wanted to ask, so could you uh, tease out a little about what you mean when you say that the conditions in Russia was such that so the move from sociology was important, I mean, it was predisposed towards going towards in understanding the problem in terms of political, political economy alone, and not sociology and you know what is the difference between um, conditions in Russia then and you know conditions in america for du bois and also in our times why are we trying i mean you know why do we see that um in our times the need for sociology is um uh, is you know more or equally important as political economy yeah <laughs> <laughs> no i'm not yeah i mean I'm no, trying no, no, to uh, you know um 
The Bolshevik party, Lenin's party was different even than the social democratic parties of Western Europe, like the German social democratic party. And the reason it was so different is not just its ideology, but um, the fact that it was an underground party in a country where even the development of a modern political state uh, with democratic uh, institutions and mechanisms like freedom of speech and freedom of political organizing, what well, was very limited in its possibilities. So the Bolshevik party was an underground party uh, for the most part. And it was a party that was held together by a strong uh, central ideology. Uh, and, you know, ideology provides the foundation of the way we talk to each other, the concepts and categories through which we communicate, and our understanding of what we as a collective are doing. So, um, so it was a different kind of party. That's why it's often called a party of a new type. You could also call it a party of a different type. Um, but it fit Russian conditions better perhaps than American conditions and better perhaps than African-American conditions. You know, for example, you know, you could get a revisionist writing of African-American history who says, would say, well, everything failed after reconstruction because no one moved to form a vanguard party. I mean, if you hang around, you know, sectarian leftists, you could hear something close to that, that everything hinge or hinges on the formation of a vanguard party. Without a vanguard party, uh, nothing fundamental is going to change. I challenge that, you see what I'm saying? I think that thinking flows out of certain assumptions that fit Russian circumstances more, let us say, than US circumstances. Uh, the other thing is, you know, and this, this is, I think, uh, uh, Sambarta, this becomes a little tricky if the party, as in Lenin's terms, is the mechanism to bring knowledge and information into the working class, if that is the main way, you see what I'm saying? To help the working class become conscious of itself, et cetera. Uh, well, one would have to say that yes, maybe for Russia, but not uh, inevitably in the United States. Now, one could also make the argument that maybe there's a mix of the two. Maybe a fluid situation. For example, you take Henry Winston, Vanguard Party, but also the Black Freedom Movement. You know what I'm saying? That, uh, let us say, which was the case, that black folk look to their institutions, their culture, their life world as the source of their leadership, of who uh, speaks for them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
So a party coming from outside of black people will have difficulty winning uh, social and moral standing among black people who will say, well, we have our churches, we have our civic organizations, we have the, this is, this is where our leadership comes from and not from outside of us. And so I think Du Bois being sociologically sophisticated said indeed, the black struggle will proceed as a movement of black folk. And the foundation of their movement will be their historically evolved institutions out of which emerges leaders of various types. There's no single, you know, cookie cutter. That is a different way of thinking about this. And I think at this moment, and this is back to the question of cynicism, of the weight of uh, disappointment that falls upon the American people in relationship to the state, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The question becomes, what are the mechanisms and vehicles for a new vision, a new sense of purpose, a new sense of what are the battle lines of struggle? Where will that come from? And pretty much, I would say, from the institutions that already exist of the people. I also wanted to ask, uh, well, to everybody, but to you, Doc, especially. I remember when we were reading Russia and America, um, du Bois talks about what he saw in Russia, but then he talks about how communism would take uh, a very different form in Asian societies. And so I think he brings a civilizational concept. Absolutely. Uh, to Absolutely. And that might be very important in today's moment where we are once again looking for new categories on which to uh, new categories of, uh, well, I don't know how to finish that sentence, but basically, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're looking for a new categories to explain this complexity. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to uh, ask you to elaborate a little more on that, uh, where, whether it was present in Lenin's formulation because it really seems like Du Bois adds that. And that's something that we have to take forward. Um, but also the anti-colonial struggles. He f yeah. Um, yeah, it's not well thought out in my head. But no, 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 no. It's very, very clear what you're saying. And um, I don't think it's something that Lenin saw as clearly as Du Bois did. And that is Asia. And what would communism look like? And what would be the paths to its realization in Asia? Uh, a continent of vast poverty in the 20th century and the collapse of the state, the collapse of 
of a lot of civil society. That's one thing about the, about the Gandhian movement. They were rebuilding civil society as they fought for independence. You know, the same with the Chinese revolution, fighting for a civil society, you know, in the liberated zones as you fought against the Japanese and, and fought the civil war. So, so the path, the trajectory Du Bois theorized would be different. It would look different. It would be anchored to the civilizations of Asia, as with Africa, you know, uh, the same thing. I think here, again, we better understand the strengths and limitations of Lenin's work when we understand more clearly the circumstances under which he was compelled to operate. And there were limitations. He was underground, he was outside of the country. Uh, uh, only a few people in his party were really uh, developed theoretically and philosophically. Uh, a lot of the weight of um, theorizing the path of revolution fell upon his shoulders. So a lot about the Russian revolution in philosophical and theoretical terms is indeed Leninist. It's Lenin. His footprint is all over it, you know? Uh, at the same time, that is not the end of the story. Because, you know, while we praise the Russian Revolution and Lenin, the greatest tribute to Lenin and the Russian Revolution is to propose the revolutionary path in your own country, and especially in the United States. Uh, but you're absolutely right that Asia will issue forward with a new path to communism, something never before seen. And that's what Du Bois says. But Du Bois considers Russia to be Asian, which I think Putin is coming to realize. So I have a question. It was Lenin and Du Bois alive at like the same time? <laughs> well, you know, you know, Lenin is born two years after Du Bois. And uh, Lenin dies uh, 40 years, almost 40 years before Du Bois. Uh, so uh, Du Bois knew Lenin, I think, better than Lenin knew Du Bois. Uh, and then Du Bois, living uh, 40 years longer than Lenin, uh, was able to study Lenin and the Russian Revolution. Uh, Lenin never studied uh, the, blacks, the Black situation or the Black struggle or the class struggle in the United States. They just didn't know it. Marx knew it somewhat, um, but not uh, in the ways that you know, we would come to know it. But yeah. How come Karl Marx had, because that was the same thing with Black Reconstruction, Karl Marx's letters about slavery. Absolutely. How come that was happening 
then and then I guess it was like was there was just a lot going on or something and Lennon wasn't looking or Mm-mm. uh yeah, yeah he just didn't have a way to do it they were True. not in touch with black people see that you know Sophie that's what we're talking about you know um you know again the Russian Revolution is Lenin's project I guess I don't mean to be trivial about it but the the thinking the formulating the conceptualization even a lot of the organizing of the cadre that carried it out that's all Lenin that is Lenin and and so when you talk about the Russian Revolution you have to talk about Leninism or Marxism Leninism I don't think that's a misnomer at all but then Lenin dies in 1924. Uh, there's still a lot to do and not just in Russia but in the world and in the United States. Uh, and so the, I won't say the backdrop, but the framing of world history after the Russian revolution is different than before the Russian revolution. But the framing of history can't be used as an excuse not to do anything creative in your own country to bring about your own revolution, you know? Yeah, because I, oh, okay. mm -hmm. oh, no, wait, sorry, go ahead. No, no, that. no, you go ahead, you go ahead. Because I guess it was like reading Russia and America, mm -hmm. Du Bois is taking and learning so much from the Soviet Union and China. Um, and his travels generally, I guess, from previous study, I, but I'm just remembering like when he goes to the Soviet Union. Um, but then it's also, I guess the thing of, okay, back to what I'm hearing you say, which is that Du Bois, um, like in his lifetime, uh, was developed, well, like, okay, it's true. You have to develop a narrative that is not racist. Mm -hmm. in, uh, and that's like, okay, a way of thinking, you know, that isn't, or that considers black people as human beings. Um, and him because I'm trying to because I'm trying to say it though it's in my mind I'm trying to say it it's like the sociology and then the new way of thinking um after reconstruction right that was also based in Du Bois life and what he was doing like at the same time and then there was the Soviet project, um, which Du Bois also considered great and which we I consider as a great project and which Du Bois was studying and learning from and um, using in a lot of ways, philosophically and ideologically. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. Du Bois does live that the 40 plus years and things like that. But I was just thinking about I guess how um, like the struggle towards freedom based off of Du Bois and his, I guess worldview, I wanna say, uh, but it's similar to this thing about sociology, like what sociology is, how it does 
and what it's supposed to be used for. Yeah. Can, can I just can I just say what but, I mean before? Because I don't want to forget this apropos what you're okay. saying. Uh -huh. you see, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, to think about, first of all, an enslaved people who were freed for a short period and then pushed back towards slavery. I mean, what are you? I mean, what are the categories out of political economy or European Marxism that could be applied to that? There are no categories. There has to be a creative way of thinking. And then what becomes not just they were in, black people were enslaved, but who are black people? And what does race and the color line mean to them? and mean in their lives and their life possibilities as a people. Du Bois had to ask the right question. You know, part of the genius of Du Bois is that he asked the right questions. He was not dogmatically, you know, trying to think about these things. Take, for example, in Souls of Black Folk, that's why I consider it his second or his, maybe his major sociological, at least theoretical sociological work double consciousness. There's, to my mind, no place in German Kantian, Hegelian, Marxist philosophy, which could have acknowledged or explained a double or fragmented consciousness. And hence, if you're doing sociology as a study of human agency, the very question that we're asking, does double consciousness so dis disable black folk as to undermine our capacity to fully realize our potential? I'm only asking a question. But however it's answered, one must acknowledge that indeed, Du Bois in 1903 discovered something irreplaceable in social scientific knowledge, and that is this doubleness. Or this concept of a color line, of a society divided along a color line. That's nowhere in Marxism or politically you just can't get it there. But who would ever imagine a path forward or who could imagine a Martin Luther King or Diane Nash or James Lawson without the concept of a color line? A color line, in some ways one would have to say that, you know, Howard Thurman and Gandhi, Howard and, and uh, Howard Thurman and Gandhi, what they're talking about in many ways is the color line. The color line. They weren't talking about religion. They were talking about the color line and its manifestations in the United States and in India and on a world scale. I think you get, you see what I'm saying? I think you get where I'm coming from, I won't say. No, I was only saying because 
because I, I was still thinking about like knowledge, what is what is available, what is not available. We know absolutely. that the ruling, absolutely we know that the ruling class has tried to distort and mm -hmm. has successfully distorted um, in a lot of ways, like the Black Freedom Movement. Um, but still, like you're saying, if the nation today, I don't even know if nation is the right word, but if America today is less racist, for example, um, than when it was um, however many years ago, or if the American people are more against war today, there's still something that seems to be embedded in society because of the, I guess, contributions or work, which is a not really the word that encompasses it in a full way of Martin Luther King and W. B. Du Bois. Um, but you, then you it's like the point, you take the point. Mm -hmm. Either everything is the same as it's always been, and thus Martin Luther King, W. B., and all of that didn't make a difference no way right. we would have done mm -hmm. better without you know we didn't need to do all that martin luther king <laughs> didn't need to die you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. you know or there is a difference that was made and there is mm -hmm. the you know they laid the, the groundwork they mm -hmm. planted the seeds for this new consciousness this new being this new nation mm -hmm. now, i'm sorry to interrupt you again no i don't um, but I guess still like, um, yeah, I just think that this thing about sociology is like really deep, like it's just, yeah, I just think that there's been a large attempt to not even ask this question at all Absolutely. in this way that we're asking it because i think for once i think the free school allowed okay the one way i think about free school or how it, i was thinking about it is that it allows like a person who participates to you know kind of not only develop a certain political consciousness and know how and kind of wherewithal about the world and what's going on but a way of thinking um and I guess it is to say like, okay, well, what is it or what is the way in which that we're thinking and how is it um, and how does that happen? How does that work itself out? Because it is true that the preschool does see a way out. Um, and I guess I'm saying that now is, <laughs> Uh, because another question I have is like, what is this uh, relationship between philosophy and sociology? And like, <laughs> but all in consideration between the question of you know black freedom, the American search for, struggle for democracy, those kind of things on the basis of Martin Luther King, like, so. But but I'm saying like, well, how? in the way that we're looking at Du Bois and thinking about Du Bois and have thought about Du Bois for some time, how did, does that sh shift us or separate uh, people in free school um, from like the left or like, you know, um, that, that kind of, or like even um, just the universities themselves, like what is it that, um, 
that makes our framework and worldview so apparently different. It's so, okay, one, it's true we do stand on principle that is against war, we stand for peace and things like that. But then even the way that we think sometimes is like, sometimes we come to different conclusions about stuff. So I was just thinking, but then the second thing I was like thinking about the- Did you hold that point? I, 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 Surfing, okay. I just, sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just thinking. No, 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 no. Okay. There was a point that you made about philosophy and sociology, and this is very important. Uh, let me just say that here you have two established uh, knowledge disciplines, and I use that language only because I don't have any better language right now. <laughs> now it's a not you know a friend. We call it. Uh, philosophy because it proceeds in certain ways. That doesn't mean all philosophy is the same. Uh, sociology is a knowledge discipline, much less developed and with a much shorter history and, and so on than philosophy. But what we can say defines these two bodies of knowledge or knowledge disciplines is the ways that they categorically, the ways that categories define them and are used by them to understand the questions raised within those disciplines. Does that make sense? Just say yes. Um, I'm saying yes only because, well, there- let, let me make my other point then, if that, okay, make, if that part makes sense. Okay. Sociology, too, is defined by categories and more than philosophy, methods of study and research of actual human beings. Even bad sociology now does that. The question that you put is not a question that has one answer, but it is a question of how these two bodies of knowledge can assist and inform one another. Example, dialectics comes out of philosophy. Dialectics, as we know, proposes certain ways that things exist and certain ways that we must proceed to know things that exist outside of us, let us say. That to me is very useful and important in sociological analysis. You know, in a sense, it prevents sociology, good sociology, radical or revolutionary sociology from becoming merely a liberal plaything, if you know what I'm saying. So that is just one example of how philosophy and sociology, and then of course, uh, a lot of the debates within soci, I mean, within philosophy about phenomenology, empiricism, these are very important to people doing sociology to make sure that they don't go off the edge into subjectivism uh, and other forms of, uh, of self 
uh, centeredness, egotism in, 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 in the practice of sociology. That's all I would say on that, but please go ahead. I just wanted to clarify that. Can't hear you. Vanessa, I don't know. Wait, can you repeat your last point about sociology? I'm trying to. Yeah, yeah. It, it you know, that'll be, and perhaps we should um, propose to take this up at another time. Okay, sorry. You have, uh, you have a lot of, um, there's a sorry. very rich, rich debate and discussion going on in the comments, which. Oh, okay. oh go ahead. Well, um, I think further the discussion, but. Okay, there, yeah, there's a lot of comments. I'm gonna, at certain times, try to just paraphrase what people are saying as best I can. Uh, <coughs> first of all, em Emily is saying that she agrees with you, Doc, that sociology, specifically through Du Bois, can rework political economy, which, as you say, is an older realm, which Marx and Lenin did not have the tools at their time to evolve in the necessary ways for today. Um, this is something Raju asked, which I think helps us understand how this new revolutionary synthesis, a task which free school is courageously trying to define and build out, is important and has huge repercussions for the question of what is to be done. Is that, um, is that now we can ask whether the quote-unquote party question is necessary to ask anymore, um, and whether the vanguard will, will ideologically and practically look much different and more similar to for instance, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, um, I think is, is, what, is what you were saying earlier. Then Danny has a number of comments about um, the question of political economy, which he defines as the politicization of the economy or the economizing of politics. <laughs> He's saying so that, that the economy has always existed, but that Adam Smith uh, was taking it to a new level by asking why political economy existed, and that this was um, in part a, a response to the French Revolution, and that he's saying that um, that the that political economy in that time was seeking to, I guess, address the needs of what was happening with the French Revolution. Um, and then he's saying that, from according to Marx, political economy was uh, finished or done by 1830, and so that Marx had a critique uh, of political economy uh, because, because of the proletarian socialist movement um, and how it politicized political economy itself against its own basis, um, that this was a contradiction. And so he, I think he's saying that um, the rise of the socialist movement was um, basically providing a contradiction by using the terms of political economy against the bourgeoisie. Um, and so that these categories have become ideological. Um, then Nathan is saying that without sociology, without the sociology of Du Bois, one would not know that the Black Freedom Movement had to have come from the church um, as it was the primary institution that people's lives are organized around. Um, my question is what today is uh, life organized around? Um, institutions are still important and need to be given new life like we saw in the Thurman Conference, yeah. an ideological renewal which equipped the Black church with the knowledge that it could become a center of struggle. Um, where could that come from today? And I think you, you partially answered that question earlier with saying it, it still is these institutions, but that they need yes. to be revived. Um, 
Danny has a question again about whether this question of sociology, um, he's saying, is this not an idealist approach of choosing between spheres of knowledge? He's asking, where is the, where is the materialism, how these theories are also product of social practice? The collapse of political economy was not one of bad thinking per se, but of the very limits of the society that gave rise to the science. And therefore Du Bois's point is that political economy is a new science, um, a, quote unquote, a program for a sociological society. And that this point implies its finitude, its overcoming, to which Emily responds, I think, <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to give a sense of the debate. No, this is good, man, really yeah. nice. Um, to which Emily responds, I think that this is what Doc is saying, that we're not choosing a sphere of knowledge, but that sociology is the universal today, and that Du Bois' science helps us to understand what's going on and the way out when political economy in and of itself alone is limited, yet of course plays, um, is important and plays a role still within sociology. Um, then Amadi Ajamu says, Human, humans are social beings and the masses make revolution. Time, place, and conditions are key. Um, and, then he has, and then Danny asks, comes in with another question again. Um, and he says that these categories of human agency and law or freedom and necessity, he says, have these not been discussed going back to the 18th century? Yes. The general will as an object confronting free individuals as a sum greater than the parts as law. He says Hegel, Kant, Rousseau, Adam Smith, even Comte, who thinks positivism only became possible in the. So you read that again. I, I missed that point after you uh, said Comte. Uh, he says, even Comte thinks that positivism, positivism, only became possible in the 19th century, which for him was a combination of feeling, religion, and science, and not just science. So I think he's saying like was Du Bois being original and sort of positing these categories of right. human agency and uh, right. law. No, he wasn't. Those uh, law and intentionality had been very much a part of Kant. I mean, I don't, he resolves it, but I don't think beyond philosophy. What Du Bois proposed is a science of human action not just speculation about human intentionality, but what does it look like? How does it manifest itself? What can it tell us uh, about the patterns of uniting for social, a collective social change? All of these types of questions are answered differently uh, based upon the, and I'm gonna use the word categories of knowledge that you use. And I, I think I hear Danny very, very clearly, and especially uh, about Marx saying that political economy had ended and then it had been revived after 1848. Very important point. And of course, I just want to emphasize Marx's political economy based on the labor theory of value and thus the centrality of the working class in bringing about change. We cannot <clears throat> overlook that or minimize it. So, but to know what that actually means, I mean, what does it mean in our life as we look around, let's say a city like Philadelphia, you know, 
in all of its complexities, in all of its ruin, in all of its inequality. You know, we can propose the theory and, and assert the theory, uh, labor theory of value. But what about the people as a whole? Meant most of whom are not in unions, but work every day in the working pool. So we have to, this is what I think Du Bois um, affords us through his methods and categories and uh, his appropriation of philosophical categories in the uh, framework of sociological investigation. And let us not forget, science without investigation is just speculation and dogma. There has to be the empirical side, the investigative side, and that side in, soci in sociology, especially Du Bois, demands multiple methods, be it urban mapping, uh, uh, what we call ethnography, living and talking to the people, uh, survey research, uh, uh, even, uh, even though I don't like it that much, statistical analysis, but we, uh, yeah, that, I'll stop there, I'll, I'll show Um, if, also, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna read some more comments, but also if anyone else has like input or comments as I'm reading them, then please feel free to interrupt me. Um, Jahan asks or says that this is a very important discussion about Du Bois and Lenin and that it's very rich to compare both. Um, and maybe you already discuss, you discussed this talk, but he says, I'm curious to know how you, how, um, how you understand Du Bois's views on the vanguard. How do we make sense of the talented tent of the guiding 100th, but then also his decision to openly join the CPUSA? Right. Did he believe the party concepts could be synthesized with the guiding 100th concept? Yeah, I, I think so. I, you know, uh, I think Du Bois is joining the Communist Party um, at the end of his life was his statement about the future trajectory of human uh, society. Um, he didn't say in his uh, letter joining the Communist Party, he didn't say anything that he had not been saying all the time, nor did he uh, retract from anything that he had said. Um, but this question of leadership is, I think, and I said, it, is still an unsettled question. Right. And I think like Nathan is saying, especially in this time, where will it come from? We just don't know. If I, if I could just give one example, the question of violence in the city of Philadelphia and murderous violence, especially among young people and especially among young men, young black men. Um, where will the leadership that challenges that come from? Well, it's hard to know right now. We do see signs of leadership, signs of pushback coming from the community. But uh, how leadership is formed, where it comes from, the way it looks, all of that type of thing is often hard to pinpoint, especially on difficult social problems. But one thing we do know, and we've seen this in the free school, that where 
for instance, where there are unions, where there are churches, where there are other civic organizations, we can see leadership emerge. Um, and yeah, that's where I would look at that. Right. Okay. Um, Danny has another set of comments about this, the sort of discussion about the vanguard. Yeah. He says that the notion of um, from without, i.e. Uh, a vanguard coming from without to the masses, um, coming from outside of the masses to the masses. Mm -hmm. uh, he says that this is not a sociological question, but a historical one. And consciousness comes from history. The party was an embodiment of the task bequeathed from 1848. It wasn't Fabianism, which I do not know. Oh, did he say Fabianism? Fabianism, yeah. Um, he says that Lenin's view of the party is not Russian, but it is the second international view. Uh, the SPD, social democratic, social, I don't know what SPD is, yes. was underground. For, social democratic party. Okay, that they were underground uh, between 1878 and 1890. Um, it is exactly what Lenin refers to in his book, in his writing, What is to be Done? It was the Menshevik view that there were specific conditions, whereas Lenin's rule, was the Kotsky um, second international rule. And then he says, um, I think maybe he's, he might be disagreeing with you about this notion of the vanguard, but he says, it is not the party that is the vanguard. The vanguard is the class, the working class. And the vanguard party is the party of that vanguard of the working class. For example, a, part, a farmer's party does not include all of the farmers, but it is the party of the farmers. It is their political arm. So the party is supposed to be an object for the people and not just a subject. Um, it was an object uh, that they embodied, that Lenin embodied history. Uh, okay, this comment is a bit confusing to read, but um, I think, yeah, he's basically saying that the, to, to my understanding that the Vanguard party was the party of like the actual Vanguard of the working class. Right. Um, and then he's also giving some, some links to how, you know, on this question of Lenin and America and black people, he's saying that Lenin did study, um, I think Lenin did study America or black people and that Winston makes reference to this. Um, he shared a few links about Lenin um, on Russia and the Negroes. I also remember he had maybe during World War I, a letter to the American working class as well. Um, and he's saying that, okay, he's, yeah, so he's quoting, I think, from a strategy for a Black agenda, where Winston is saying that Lenin's lifelong work demonstrates that he understood what Du Bois was driving at. Right, right, right. This yeah. Very important. Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, and that, uh, so this is from Winston, that Du Bois declared that the color line was the problem of the 20th century, but Du Bois did not say it was the solution. As Lenin demonstrated, the solution lies in the strategy to overcome the disunity of the oppressed and the exploited at the line of differences in color or nationality. Because Lenin led in building the first political party dedicated to the solution of the color line as the problem of the 20th century, um, the October Socialist Revolution was able to put an end for the first time in history to class, national, and racial oppression. Um, and okay, final comments from, from Danny. Yes, I think Du Bois is original, 
um, in the essays of uh, in Du Bois's essay, Sociology, Hes Sociology Hesitant and Program for a Sociological Society. And I agree that trying to use Marx's critique of political economy today is perhaps very distant and may not be very useful. So that's why I cringe when I hear Marxist economics um, or that term. Yeah. Um, and, and I would just say this, the, the, this question of a party, we should, we should reserve a time where we will discuss that, that right. question. Um, because, and here, uh, we wish to avoid both the ultra left sectarian position, which would formulate things as the principal question of this moment is the party. Uh, I'm not inventing that I heard that so often uh, back in the days. So uh, all revolutionaries uh, withdraw into studying uh, issues that would lead to a party. Um, it had disastrous effects, by the way, that approach. The other is a complete denial of any form of organized or leadership, organization and leadership of the masses without a party. Um, or a party formation like DSA, which is nothing but the Democratic Party in different clothing. So, uh, I think we have to, we, we, should, we should revisit this. Uh, a party is not uh, a thing in itself, uh, like all things that are um, valuable and creative. It is a thing, uh, it is a thing, uh, how, do, how do I put it? Um, a thing for itself and thus a thing for humanity. A for and in itself is separate from the great movements and the people. Um, I, I hesitate on the for itself, that's Kantian too, but um, what I'm trying to get at is the question of what is to be done. What do we do now when a people are in rebellion, when a people have turned against the state and all of its major institutions? What, what is to be done? How do you practice? What do revolutionaries do without a vanguard party? And I think this is the question that we have to ask. But I think the party question we should put on the table for another day in this discussion. Yeah, I'd also be interested uh, to hear your thoughts or to talk about in the future. Um, you know, it's not just the idea of the vanguard party, but the idea of a third party on yeah. a national level, which I think, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people talk about. Um, and I think it has served different uses throughout history. The, the notion of a third party and the movement there for like a third party alternative to the prevailing ones um, 
but anyways, yeah. It, it well, or the issue of a quote broad socialist party. Mm, yeah. You know, oh, we what we should have is a united front, a socialist. Well, the next question: What is its program and what does it do? Right. I mean, Lenin had a specific purpose for the Bolshevik Party. He defined that, and it was not the same as the German Social Democratic Party. Not at all. It was a major break, even in the inception of the Bolsheviks, with the Social Democratic Parties of Europe, of Western Europe. So um, we're faced with practical questions uh, that at the same time require theoretical framing of them. Yeah, and Jamila just said that um, she was agreeing with you that the hardest part uh, of the process of liberation is to ask the right questions. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, you right. It is. Um, oh, Danny just had another comment saying that uh, he agrees with you that um, that he is against uh, that we need to be against ultra left sectarianism and the denial of a party and or uh, being a wing of the Democrats, which is a kind of right opportunism and that the party is not a thing in itself uh, and that it would look very different than Lenin's experience um, if we compare that with America today. Yeah, yeah. And Amadi Ajami just said that, uh, thank you for your insightful contribution to this discussion, Serafina. Any more comments? Uh, Todd says, Todd Doherty says he's excited to, about an opportunity to discuss the, the idea or the notion of a van, vanguard party at the first. Yeah. yeah, no, and, and, and you know, um, this discussion is all around us. You got a group of people um, who call themselves patriotic communists. Um, and I guess that means that they're non-ultra leftist communists. Uh, by the way, as I've said, you know, on occasion in free school, you know, everybody's talking they're a communist now, uh, but very few of them were talking that they were communists when it was a price to be paid for that. Um, believe me, but. Um, some things, some words lose their value because they are eviscerated of historical significance and anybody could uh, wear the name. Uh, the patriotic communists uh, sadly and unfortunately see communism as a white working class uh, project. Uh, I, you know, I saw some of them, you know, they mentioned the communists that they identify with and they're all white people. I'm in the, I was in the communist party. I mean, all white, I didn't see all white people. And uh, in fact, uh, many of the most important figures in the communist party were not white. So how did they come up with all white people as this patriotic communism? 
but um, I think, uh, again, it is a lack of, of understanding of the American people, certainly of black people. Um, and the need, it cries, the, the need cries out for sociology, for Du Bois. Du Bois is so important, even if we decide of what decisions we make about a party in the 21st century, a vanguard party, be it a Leninist or not a Leninist party, whatever we decide, the discussion is going to have to be framed by the questions asked by Du Bois. Right. I don't care how you go about it. You cannot get to how we answer the question of a party by framing it solely or um, most importantly within the questions asked by Lenin. I don't think you get to a party in the United States because the landscape, the social landscape, the class landscape, the demography, all of these questions will go into determining what political action and what political formations look like. Yeah, I, actually, I have a question. Um, oh, sorry, Serafina, did you want to go? Well, yeah, I had a question of, um, like, would you say that it's accurate to say that one of the great contributions of the American Communist Party, especially under Winston's leadership, was that they recognized the significance at the time of the civil rights movement and of the Black Freedom Movement. Yeah. And that, you know, in contrast, I think to, I mean, I'm also trying to work out the contrast with, you know, this kind of the politics of essentially like Trotskyists of like entryism where they're trying to kind of steer like enter into an existing movement and kind of steer it in a direction that they think is right without being totally upfront about where they're actually coming from but you know given the fact that there were you know not just Winston but there were many people who were communists or had been shaped by the, the communist party who joined the civil rights movement from a principled position because they recognized its importance as you know the central social like the central social movement in America at the time um, and not and weren't trying to basically weren't trying to like dictate it but genuinely lent their you know support to it and joined it um, I wonder if that you know does that give a kind of uh, I don't know like a model almost or yeah. Yeah, yeah, kind of way yeah. of operating, which is principled, but you know whether you're part of a vanguard or not, or whether you see yourself as part of a vanguard or not, or a party or not, like, do you have the ability to recognize when a movement does emerge, like what is going to be your relationship to it? Um, but yeah. And that, that's always the question. And um, I think, at one point in American history, um, the Communist Party played that role brilliantly and eloquently, especially in you know, the 1930s uh, with the class uprising, the trade union mobilizing, and then the black resistance still going on. Uh, yeah, yeah. But again, um, 
yeah, I, I would just say this, the equation, the, the equation, I'll put it that way, between a party and a mass movement. What, what do we mean by a mass movement? Suppose it's a mass movement of a new type. You know, uh, suppose it is a mass movement of a new type that embraces the ideas of King and the freedom movement and Du Bois. Suppose something like that emerges. Or suppose a mass movement emerges with cadre that are widely trained intellectually, let us say who understand Lenin and Du Bois and the synthesis flowing therefrom. I mean, there are multiple possibilities and so much hinges upon the political education of the broad mass of people, but of that uh, group of young people and not so young people who are committed to a longer term struggle. Um, how they uh, organize themselves, how this is manifested within a movement of a new type, by new type, we mean on a higher level of consciousness. We saw it all over the Black Freedom Movement. You, you know, Diane Nash and, and Jim Lawson are not ideological or theoretical lightweights. They are very sophisticated, as was Martin Luther King, uh, as were many of the figures in the Freedom Movement, if their biographies are ever fully uh, uh, presented. These were not, uh, a lot of people get the image of John Lewis as the representative of the civil rights movement. I disagree with that. He was never considered among the advanced cadre of the freedom movement, never. You know, um, uh, the Diane Nashes, maybe at one time, Jim Bevels, uh, certainly uh, James Lawson, uh, and of course, Martin Luther King, who had this grand vision of a new people coming into being. Uh, <laughs> you see, the question is, if that is the movement, see, I know the communists, and to the credit of the US Communist Party, they joined the movement. They didn't try to take over the movement, never did and wanted to, in a, a self-sacrificing way, give whatever they could to this movement. And that's the way they operated. And of course, Winston was, and other black communists were very important in establishing that. Yeah, because I think with the question of the Vanguard Party, it's always like, okay, what does it look like? You know, who it who, who will constitute mm -hmm. the Vanguard? And it's true um, to that question, uh, with or without. Um, it's not you can't really go in extremes, um, but. Yeah, I guess I, I was just saying that I agree with that point. That's still like 
the movement or whatever is, is grounded on the political education. Um, political education, whether that be of the people or political education and how, well, really like the process of political education is not something that really seems like it will start very with a, a mass amount of people or a thousand people who come. But the fact that through like a certain process, mm -hmm. you know, like the uh, consciousness can develop and be used. And um, I was thinking similarly um, because it's hard to, because my other thing about the Vanguard party was an example or the example that the Nation of Islam like gives. They aren't a political party. Um, it's religious, they're a religious group, but it could be said in some ways that they uh, constitute, or if one were to look at them, they constitute a certain um, world within themselves mm -hmm. that like um, will help black people progress in a, in a lot of ways. And um, that, and, and so my mind went there, but then it's, but then it still can't be said that uh, that is an example of a political party that works. That be, because the thing about the political vanguard or, or the, the thing about the political party asks the question, what is the movement of this time? What is like, how, what, how, do, how does the American people move forward in this moment? Mm -hmm. And at least to me, because, mm -hmm. so that's why I'm thinking like, it's still something that will kind of like come rather than something that we can point the finger at and say, this is exactly what it'll constitute as. But, so that's why I'm like, I agree with the fact that political education serves as the basis of any political or revolutionary change period. Um, because it's a, through the clarification of how, the way out, what is to be done? How do you get to the way out that will help develop any political vanguard or anything like that? Um, but. Yeah, and I feel like that's also why talking about like the theoretical framework is so important because I feel like, yeah, there are a lot of logistical questions that also come out of it, like, oh, like the Vanguard party, whatever. But it seems like from the beginning, we have to understand like what does the American, like what do the American people look like? Like where are they thinking from? And I think I also wanted to ask if you could just speak more about Henry Winston as maybe embodying like the synthesis of Lenin and Du Bois. Because um, I mean, obviously there are a lot of, I guess, commonalities or things from Lenin, but then also clearly from Du Bois. And I feel like in the writing itself, part of it reads as like maybe a little bit, um, I don't know, like communist or Leninist, just because there is discussion of like the economic forces at work. But at the same time, those economic forces are so enmeshed with, I think, the ideological attacks that are mounted by the ruling class on the people and the need for political education or the development of 
consciousness for people to see through those attacks. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's interesting because Lenin and Du Bois, thinking about them, you there is a need to figure out, I guess, the practical questions of like, okay, what is the relationship um, of, I guess, the vanguard to the people, but then. Absolutely. Firstly, I feel like it is like a philosophical or theoretical question of like, how do you even begin to understand it? Yeah. No, I, I agree with the way you're putting it. And, and these are questions to be answered. You know, Winston was saying, you know, in defense of Lenin's position on the nationalities question in Russia, you know, that, um, Lenin understood, and by understood, you know, I think when he was really saying, uh, uh, Lenin grasped the existence of a color line of a racial division within the working class within Russia. And that Lenin's solution was to seize state power and using state power to extend freedom and the right to self-determination to formally oppress nations and nationalities. You know what I'm saying? Um, I think the importance of what, do, of what Winston did in, in strategy and then in um, several of the essays in um, race, class and black liberation was his highlighting of the significance of Du Bois, Frederick Douglass, and Martin Luther King for the framing of the American question. This is the important thing. I mean, I think Winston in spirit and in content is pretty much doing what we're trying to do. We're just trying to do what he was doing and expanding it. You know, the very fact that he mentions Du Bois and Lenin together. Many people would view that as a, the height of revisionism. Wasn't Du Bois a bourgeois liberal and wasn't Lenin a Bolshevik revolutionary? And uh, I think Winston is, is uh, saying, in another way, that there is no struggle for socialism without the fight for full democracy and in the United States, the fight against racism. So what Winnie is getting at is for those communists who think that all we have to do is talk about the class struggle and the working class, and that solves the problem. What Winston is saying is that Lenin understood what Du Bois was talking about when he said that there cannot be an advance towards socialism without the fight against racism and for democracy. That's what Winnie is getting at. And, uh, and I think Winston is paying attention, and this is a, a new feature of Marxism that Lenin brings, I think, and that is the nationality question as central to the class question. But with all of that having been said, um, it is still only at a certain level. 
not at the deep sociological level that is required at this time. I don't know whether that made sense, Nori. Yeah, one of the things that I've kind of gotten a sense of from reading Winston um, is sort of the, like why, why he, like how and why he critiques certain ideologies and certain figures. Um, and it's, the sense that I get is that it's somewhat distinct, it's related, but somewhat distinct from even Lenin because, and I haven't read that much Lenin, but what I have read, when Lenin critiques people, like certain figures, it's, I feel like he focuses less on what those ideologies or what those sort of, yeah, those ideological messages or points are, what their effect is on the people themselves. Whereas Winston focuses much more on not just like, what is the contradiction and what someone like Stokely Carmichael, or even let's say like, Daniel Moynihan or something like that. Not just a contradiction within it, but what impact does this have on the people themselves um, and their sense of possibility and their strivings? Um, which I think, as you're saying, Winston is getting so much of that from Du Bois. Yes, there's no question. There is no question. And, and um, you know, if, if I could just, you see, Winston acknowledges that's why he talks about from the anti-slavery to the anti-monopoly coalition. <laughs> you know, just that formulation in itself is um, for some people jarring. How could you call, how could you relate the anti-slavery to the United Front Against State Monopoly Capitalism today, which is a class project? Where, where does race and racial oppression play into all of this? See, Winston is attempting to answer the question uh, in the face of this great movement. Now, Strategy is published in 1973. Uh, King is assassinated in 1968. Uh, the great people's movement that King was envisioning was not to be. But Winston is saying the legacy of the anti-slavery struggle and Frederick Douglass must be uh, appropriated, must be understood and applied to the current moment, which was this period that he was writing about 1973. A lot of people would, you, you see the problem, a lot of people would say, well, uh, the anti-slavery struggle was important, but the class conflict is more important. They could argue and did argue that way, you know? Let me give you an example. An important group of people informing the Communist Party of the United States came out of an organization called the Wobblies, the International Workers of the World. Heroic, unbelievable people. Uh, names like Big Bill Haywood, Mother Mother Jones, Mother Bloor, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, uh, I can't name them all. But a lot of them joined the Communist Party. They came out of a, not a strong ideological movement, but an activism, a militant working class activism. 
you know? So when they come into the Communist Party, uh, a lot of times, uh, for good or bad, they um, shunted aside theory and theoretical questions, and they, want, they wanted to go down to West Virginia, go in the mines, distribute leaflets to the workers, beautiful thing. But without a guiding theory, without guiding ideology, pardon me, without what Du Bois talks about, scientific studies, you know, things hit a, hit a roadblock, a, a, a wall. And that's what happened. A lot of the very heroic people from the Wobblies movement kind of withered on the vine and, you know, kind of went their own way after a point. Um, you know, like, what is all this talk about? What is all this? We don't need that. We need action type of thing. Um, so Winston, you know, he, this is very, I'm thinking back the way he was, you know, he was a guy that um, was sensitive to the broad working class but as he would put it, the centrality of the Black liberation struggle. Many people up to this day believe that is a way of diminishing the class struggle. I would argue in defense of Winston's position against them that you say that because you have no idea of dialectics. You know, it's for them, either it's class or race. Either it's the working class or the black freedom movement. Well, in some instances in Winston and others would propose this, the black freedom movement becomes that center through which the class conflict will manifest itself. I mean, these, like, that's why he calls the book Strategy for a Black Agenda. Really, it's strategy for people's, for people's freedom. You know, uh, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no I'm sorry. No. No, no, no. Well, you go ahead. I'm... You want me to talk? Okay. Uh, this is why after every free school, I have to come home and lay my burden down. I talk too much, man. <laughs> but I just wanted to, you know, bring up Trotskyism and it's difficulty in dealing with the colonial question and the race question. Always have had a difficulty there. Uh, they've tried to mechanically, you know, uh, uh, brush over the, uh, their difficulties. But ideologically, Trotskyism is unable to deal with the anti-colonial question. And that's why, you know, there is no, evidence in any of the great anti-colonial movements of Trotskyists. They're just not there. 
even in the Black Freedom Movement, there were a couple of Black members here and there who joined this or that demonstration, but they could never fully comprehend the significance of the Black Freedom Movement in the context of what, do, what when he calls the anti-monopoly struggle. By monopoly, some about state monopoly capitalism. Serafina, did you wanna say? Not really, no, I was like kind of like irrelevant, but just saying doc, you know, we appreciate, I appreciate you either way, even though sometimes you talk a lot or <laughs> whatever. You don't really talk a lot like that. So that's that. But two, I was just reminded about Serafina, the conversation. I embarrass myself sometimes. I talk too much, but go ahead. <laughs> if you embarrass yourself, then I guess I'm embarrassed too. So we're both embarrassed okay. together. Okay. And we're gonna rock out. And no, but um, I was just, it, it's not really that important, but I was just reminded again about like the Roe v. Wade stuff and how like the feminist, like the conversation about the feminist movement as being, be, like it only was able to happen because of the Black Freedom Movement, um, just to kind of reiterate that point. But I guess, yeah, that's literally, I guess it. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And all of these movements are philosophically impoverished. You know, just mm -hmm. like they talk intersectionality. Well, there's the trans, there's the feminist, there's the black. And so all of these, in, they intersect. But that's not dialectics. That's philosophical impoverished. Well, I think so. And it's a throwback, actually, if you, if you think about it in philosophical terms, much of it is a throwback to uh, Anglo-Saxon liberalism. Uh, it is not a revolutionary dis uh, dispensation. It's not a revolutionary formulation. Just like we say, is there a way out? Can we find a way out of the crisis for, let us say, bourgeois feminists, which is the definition, feminism is bourgeois, uh, most of them uh, say there is no way out. Uh, Black Lives Matter, the 1619 Party, there is no way out. White people are racist, been racist, if you really want to understand. And I got this from an interview with Gerald Horn in the Platypus Review. And Gerald Horn says, you want to understand racism, you got to go back to um, the first crusades against Turkey. You know, and yeah, I mean, now you take, hey, look, I, then you're going to take me, then I'm going to have to be Afrocentric. You're going to have to take me back to ancient Egypt 5,000 years ago before I can even begin to discuss racism in 20th and 21st century America. And then after you take me back then, then I'm going to have to do social biology to say that racism is embedded in white people and you're not going to change that anyway. So let's keep things as they are. So, I mean, you, know. you know, that's interesting though, because with that, it's like, you don't, there is no way out. There is no way to like see that's the world that either. Is, that's the point. That That's yeah. the point, Serafina, that, I'm, that, you know, that consumes the way I think about all of this. 
What is the way out? What is the way out? When we go to the Church of the Crucifixion, we were with Mother Jesse and, and the people there. We're looking at a way out. There's a possible, the Church of the Overcomer. I mean, all of this, we're seeing the people and they're pushing constantly and they're thinking the same way we are. What is the way out? You know, and if that is not at the top of the agenda of theory and philosophy and investigation, it doesn't have any meaning. And I'll tell you, you know, just like for the uh, 10th anniversary, you know, one of the major things that we, and we've been working on this and thinking it out, uh, an all day, almost mini conference on pedagogies for the political, for the moral, spiritual and political education of children and youth. Children and youth. And um, this, this is going to be a big one because with pedagogies, and I get this from Catherine Blunt, pedagogies, schools, and so on and so forth, everything doesn't come into the classroom. Everybody doesn't come into the classroom of children five and six years old. All of your ideological recklessness and all of your whatever you want to call it is not for children. All things that are sold as music are not for children. And I guess one of the things in this pedagogy, you know, uh, Seraphine, we've got to work this out in this pedagogy is what is permissible to bring into the life worlds of children. Because so much of pop culture and these movements and, the, and all of this loose talk is really violence against children. And a lot of violence that children are incapable of explaining of, of you know, what does this mean? What are you saying to me? So we, you know, we want to establish this. It's, it's not, you know, freedom of free, is not free, free fall into, into darkness. So we want, you know, and that, that's what we're trying to work out, that, that children must have a sky. Young people must have a sky. And this idea that there's nothing but what we have now, and you keep saying that and you keep acting that way, frankly, it's not the way most people think, at least most people that we work with in the free school. Uh, but yeah, so we, yeah, go, go ahead, Sarah, I'm sorry. No, it's just a really small point to the, like what you're saying about children, because I guess another thing that I heard somebody say when, uh, or whom I work with at the church, they were like uh, driving with their grandchild, like, from from um, Cheltenham to Chelton Avenue. And when they got to Chelton Avenue, the kid was like, oh, this is where the bad, like like they were in a bad neighborhood or like, oh, said something that surprised Absolutely. the older wo woman in the fact that the child was able to tell 
when things are bad <laughs> or when things shouldn't be as what they are. And in that conversation that we were having, another person has said, well, if you wanted the truth, then you either ask like a drunk person or a kid. Um, but like the point is the fact are, is similar to, I, I forget what Baldwin had said, but I know Baldwin had spoke or talked about children. I'm just not remembering, right? Somebody else remember, right, right. remember it better than me about like the, like, like the fact that when it's true, a child is able to realize it right away. You a know, lie, when they're able to realize a lie very quickly. Yeah. And what I'm saying is like when a child is seeing like poverty and like, you know, just bad stuff, like they can see it as bad and as not right. And you know, a thing with the Putin speech or the words that he used about the historical, the historical creative, like what did he say is the creative, but like that just made me think about how much energy is getting submerged and pushed down. Absolutely, absolutely. Just because of absolutely. all of this moral decadency, this ruling class, who does not care about people in this country. And I just know that the, the what free school is doing is so important because we're able to link things together that needs to be linked and help preserve um, this, uh, or like the real struggle, like, and to ask these real questions that I think younger people can pick up and be like, I can think about this now. Like, um, so yeah, I just wanted to say that. <laughs> I keep falling. Yeah, I think um, the quote from Baldwin you may be thinking of is, uh, I think he says, children cannot be fooled, they can only be betrayed. <laughs> That's Baldwin. Yeah. We have some like final last comments. Um, Todd Doherty says, uh, from earlier, adding to what Serafina is saying, um, it would be interesting to know the Saturday Free School's goals for a Vanguard party, a manifesto, so to speak. But I don't know if we're saying that we're trying to put forward a Vanguard party so much as to actually, you know, the task is, first of all, as you've been saying, like we want to understand the people. Like that is the task. And I think questioning what is what is the role if there is one of a Vanguard party? Is that relevant for these times? Is that the path forward? Um, or is it something different? And then Danny said, Tony, you don't talk too much. So he's saying that you should, <laughs> it's fine. Um, and then Daryl Wasteline Mitchell says, what is the way out? It's, that is a great summation and follow-up to Lenin's what is to be done. I mean, it's, yeah, very similar also to, to King's, where do we go from here? Yeah. Can I say something to Daryl? Uh, Daryl, I was with a friend of mine who I went to Lincoln University with, who's from Detroit. You might know him, his name is Reg McGee, uh, but we spent some time together on um, Thursday. 
and um, he was uh, he's very uh, knowledgeable about the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, about uh, James and Grace Lee Boggs and their center in Detroit, and so on. And it seems to me, I could be wrong about this, Daryl, but uh, that that the League, and, and, and by the way, my friend looks upon General Baker as his mentor. In fact, when we began to talk about General Baker, he, he broke down in tears. He felt you know, he was so close to General Baker. But it seems to me that the League broke apart um, when it put the question of a vanguard party ahead of everything that they were doing. And thus all kinds of splits and, and things uh, happened where there had been unity around the fundamental questions of the unions uh, and the uh, industries and the plants. And there was a lot of space to continue to develop that, but it was abandoned on, the, uh, uh, on this thing of uh, the political party, the vanguard party, which was premature and incapable of being realized in those circumstances, I believe. Maybe Daryl would say something more about that. If not this time, when we get back to that question uh, of, of what we're saying uh, about a vanguard party, a party, so to speak. Yeah, he's saying, um, he said, I know Reg, he was around the league. Later, we were in the Communist Labor Party together. And uh, we could talk about, the, uh, we could talk about uh, this one next week. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Not next week, because we're doing- Or two uh, weeks, yeah. Uh, yeah, two weeks from now, because we're doing uh, uh, William Hart. We'll talk about that in a minute. Right. Okay. Uh, um, I didn't know, um, I don't know if we have the time to get into it now, but I just wanted to Sort of get back to you know the question we started this with the practice of practical philosophy of the boys and i was thinking in terms of you know how how this allows him to see the revolutionary process mm -hmm. and and you know as as you know that being the way out of a dogmatic understanding of any fixed i mean any fixed theory this sort of loyalty to a theory as opposed to loyalty to the people and I was thinking how, like, you know, he's, he seems to see, I mean, I, I could be wrong, but I think, uh, I think Dubai seems to see the individual as evolving in this process. And, and this is the way that, you know, like how he goes towards sociology and not being, um, and, and, you know, not being stuck with the political economy as, as the only theory, as, as the only the only mode of knowledge in which to understand society and this reminded me also of you know um well of gandhi's idea of socialism because i mean he he called the concept sarvodaya but i mean he what you know what he was talking about was the role of the individual and he was uh i think his theory came up from the fact that it was the end i mean it it was in it was in the individual's good the good for all lay in the individual's good itself and how how you know he he actually drew this concept from uh, from someone's uh, i mean a critique of political economy and i haven't read that i haven't read ruskin's what was his book under the last i think but he draws on this idea of of socialism 
by you know understanding man by you know understanding sociology and therefore developing his his you know his unique way towards socialism and i mean he wasn't really appreciated by many of the then uh, i mean socialists in the indian context but i was thinking of this in terms of what we were talking about during the putin speech like you know you said about the ideological shift in the russian state from from you know understanding in terms of the political economy towards sociology and identifying itself with the afro asiatic world but i'm thinking yeah i'm i'm thinking in terms of what the like you know how the practical philosophy of du bois plays out in terms of understanding it as a process as opposed to um fixed theories and their outcomes and you know based on concrete facts okay we have seen that you know communism had has you know succeeded in this place it has not succeeded in in, in this place in this sort in this sort of framework as opposed to seeing the the i guess the potentiality in terms of people changing a new people being born yeah yeah it's it's not a concrete thought yet but i was wondering if we can talk more about that <laughs> I, you know um i think we're saying all the same thing that we are we're in a rapidly changing global and national environment this is unprecedented unprecedented i don't think the uh gap between the people and the ruling elite of this country has ever been so wide uh the crisis of legitimacy uh is everywhere every major institution people don't trust the media they don't trust universities they don't trust uh the supreme court they don't trust they don't the congress nothing they don't trust i mean trust and uh trust you know sounds like a, a a small word but that is fundamental to the relationship between people and the people who govern or rule them so we're approaching ungovernability hence what will be the path that the people will take in their struggle for freedom and this is urgent this is an urgent task because the people are going to move and they're not imagining themselves that is the people are not imagining themselves in the ways that the elite academics and people who live in big cities imagine them um so this is what is before us i think I think that we are well served to study reference and build upon the great movement of the 1950s and 60s we call it the black freedom movement uh and certainly uh Du Bois and King but then we as we're saying there has to be a reworking of the purpose of political economy it has to be reworked from the standpoint of not philosophy but sociology um and the assumptions and insights 
that Du Bois brought. And when we say sociology, we're talking about that great creative effort essentially put forward by Du Bois, which was crushed uh, by the first decade of the 20th century. But we have the material, we have the categories uh, of analysis. And I think that kind of scientific investigation informs the tactical questions, informs the tactical questions. And everything must be, all efforts must be to the front of the people, to the front of struggle, to the battlefield, so to speak, where people are fighting, where people are fighting to understand, where people are fighting to save their children from the debacle, from the collapse, moral collapse of this civilization. Uh, and that is why, you know, a, a Serafina, uh, one other song by Stevie Wonder I'd like for you to uh, look at, these three words. I mean, we, you know, I was, let me, and I'm gonna shut my mouth. You know, we need to sing Stevie Wonder now more than ever. In the face of a, of a spiritual and moral onslaught against children and youth, we need to sing Stevie Wonder and other songs like that. Because without a music of freedom, without a music of liberation, you know, and music, you know, becomes people's first contact with the freedom movement. You know, a lot of people, they couldn't read, they didn't know, you know, but they heard the songs of the freedom movement and they were attracted to the protests and the marches because they heard people singing. And this is, um, yeah, that's all, you know, everything has to be directed to the battlefront of, of struggle of the people and anything that is an obstacle to that must be cast aside. Jerry, if we ain't got no more comments, I think it's about that time. Oh, about that time. <laughs> Don't you think? <laughs> I think so. Unless anyone else has comments. Okay. Well. Could I just say next yeah. week, I think we'll be meeting in person and we want to do a tribute to William Hart, lead singer and co-founder of the Delphonics. Uh, his actual name is William Hart Muhammad. He was a lifelong member of the Nation of Islam. And, um, and I think everything in his life, as we'll find out, informed his music. Uh, and, and so in that sense, we want to pay tribute to him and have some of his childhood friends, hopefully his brother, uh, and others who knew him and, and even to talk about his music. So maybe in preparations, we can all listen to the greatest hits of the Delphonics. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah, I'm yeah, I'm really looking forward to that and hopefully meeting again in person soon.
Um, but yeah, thank you everyone for um, for listening and tuning in and commenting. I think it, today's been a really fruitful um, fruitful discussion. I feel like we made a lot of I feel like we made a lot of ground today. Um, and so yeah, we look forward to seeing everyone next week. Uh, Take care. Uh, yeah, we can end the live stream. Thank you. Bye. -bye. Uh,